Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome back to everybody joining us from the first hour. This is the Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Steffen. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It is Monday, January 16th, 2017. It's about eight minutes after 9 p.m. Pacific time. If that's when it is where you're at, we're live. And you can can actually, uh, what do you call it? Go to our website and join in by uh, getting in our chat room. You'll see it over on the uh, left-hand side of the page in the menu section. Unless you're on a mobile device, then it'll be in that little menu section there that you've got to, you know, tap or whatever. And, uh, you know, go in there and you can uh, participate in the show. And you can also just socialize with everybody in there. Anywho... As I said, this is uh, about 9, this is the 9 o'clock hour, which means this is the second hour, and that must mean it's Monday, uh, because that's the only hour I do a second hour. Well, it actually isn't, but anyway, Monday's one of those times I do a second hour. So, here we are, and why? Because we have our co-host with us, coming to us live from New York City. Welcome, Dean Lauren. 
Well, thank you, Frank, and it's a pleasure. I noticed that last week's show was not up. Am I being punished? Uh, no, but you should be. Uh, but, you know, that's for a different conversation, I guess. All right, so are you... No, know you deserve it. I don't know what for, but I know you deserve it, and I know you know you deserve it. So my question to you tonight but I don't is, know why. Have you been committing or thinking about committing suicide? No, and I'm not running for president either. All right. Because that seems like a real good way to try to commit suicide, because, uh, I don't know, man, I'm a little... Uh, I, I hope Trump has got some body doubles. Well, uh, well, we are going to talk about that tonight, and so let's just, uh, and by the way, folks, I am not contemplating suicide either. Oh, we and, know that. And you'll understand by the end of the show why I'm not, uh, for many reasons. Now, for those people that maybe aren't aware of uh, the fact that I am from Washington, D.C., I was born there, raised there. My family works there, has died there. My father is buried across from the Pentagon in the National Cemetery in Arlington, overlooking the repaired hole in the wall of the alleged jet that flew in to the building. <laughs> yeah. So... Tonight's show, I, I actually want to reach out and uh, address certain issues regarding Melania Trump. And I, you know, when you grow up in, in, in D.C., you, like yourself, Frank, you grew up in, in you, a privileged situation, even though you may not have taken full access of the privileges. No, it was, I hey. I look around at it. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't view it that way. But looking back, yes, it was a very privileged childhood. Yes, it was. And even though I grew up in a very rural setting, I had every scientific, technological, mathematical, philosophical, educational tool at my fingertips. That's what was given to, for lack of a better word, the sons and daughters of the centurions, the people that guard the, the Washington, D.C. area. And they did that to keep our parents happy. So, you know, I was rather shocked when I, you know, spoke to some people back home. Now, they are not from D.C. And I was very sad to see that there was this, this hate built up against Melania in this perceived uh, I, I don't know what to call it, but a misconceived idea that the fact that this woman you know, she hasn't even had the chance to do anything. I mean, what's there to hate about her? I mean, she hasn't tried to feed anybody's kid a horse so to my ear, has she? Like, no, she uh, like the one in the White House. I mean, there's reasons to hate her, and there's reasons uh, to hate Obama. But, you know, ne actually neither one of these people have really done anything yet. 
Well, I, I have personally dealt with Donald Trump and the fact that he had slave labor in the basement of Trump Towers, special ed kids without pay for three years that I know personally about, and who Mukasey was the judge on the case, and he personally got up and testified for Jeff Sessions. So, Oh, gee, hey, why don't we just call them interns, okay? You know, because they don't get paid either. So what's, the, what's your point here? I mean, it's not no. like Donald Trump did something that isn't being done every single day of the Frank, week in this country. Frank, Dean. Frank, it's no excuse. When you tell a young child they're going to get paid, they are going to get credits, they are going to get an education, and then they're going to graduate, and then you just leave them hanging out to dry to put food on trays for rich people upstairs without pay, without credits. You wipe their education credits off. And in fact, there is no record that they attended school. And you think Donald Trump did all that or he just took advantage of it? I'm saying that's what I know he did. So Donald Trump, got out there and said, okay, wipe these kids' credits off. Don't pay those little bastards. And, uh, and, and Donald Trump did all that himself. Is that what you're saying? Yes, Frank, because well, I being, personally... you're delusional, okay? Frank, You think Frank. he has anything to do with slaves in the basement? Frank. I doubt Donald Trump's been to the basement of any of his buildings for Shut the robbers years. up. I went Hey, directly. Dean, guess what? Don't... You know what? I'm not in the mood tonight for your uh, holier-than-thou big-shot act, okay? So shut the hell up. Okay, so what would you have done to get their pay? What would you have done, big man? I don't know. I guess I would have had an advocate for them somewhere say, hey, listen, uh, these kids work this many hours. And wait a minute. How long does this go on, Dean? I mean, you know what? The first paycheck I don't get in 40 hours of work, I'm going to be asking somebody, where's my money? You know who I went to? Instead of running your mouth, why don't you listen? I went to Rosie O'Donnell's brother, who is an assemblyman for the state of New York, for the district of these children. And I said to Rosie O'Donnell's brother, I said, here are the records. Solomon didn't get paid. Solomon Bryant. Would you please contact the Trump organization to collect his three years pay? I also contacted Ivanka Trump, the daughter, personally. Why did it take three years, Dean? Why not the first paycheck? Where's my money? Huh? What took so long? Frank, you're dealing with special ed children. Hello? What does that... Okay, so special ed children are just cut loose. Hey, good luck, retard. Go get a job. Is that it? you've never worked with retarded children, have you? No, Have I haven't, no. but I'm assuming All right. but I'm assuming so, you don't just cut them loose off on the job Frank, site, Dean, right? Frank, Frank, I used to work with retarded children. Well, then... For two years, Frank. Okay, so I you were there with them toiling in the basement and seeing they weren't getting paid and Frank, didn't do anything for three years? Is Frank, that what you're saying? Frank, yes. Okay, I'm saying well, okay. that you need to do something instead of just picking your nose. You make a difference. Now, because I'm coming from D.C., I get an opportunity 
to speak to all the wives in D.C. who are there and who are going to lose something significant because of this perceived slight against Melania. Because you see, it transfers in the South, Frank. You are not of the South. You don't know. You know the what? Code. The South ain't what the South was. The South is dead, butter. Frank, you're just showing your ignorance. That's all you have. <laughs> you know what, Dean? I've been all around this country, and I'll tell you right now, the South ain't no different, no more than any northern place, except for the weather. That's it. They're just the same as everywhere else because of the public school system, Dean. There ain't no southern culture left, okay? It'd be nice to think there was. And there may be some museums left, but the people ain't living it, okay? The people just ain't living that old Southern culture that maybe you grew up in. It's gone. Just like the New Jersey I grew up in is gone. It's not there no, anymore. you got a carpetbagger mentality. That's where you were born, and that's where you're raised. You're a carpetbagger. You got that mentality, Frank. You just don't go any further. You know what, Dean? You need to, you need to look, in fact, that... Sessions, his wife, Mary Blackshear Sessions. Now, she comes from Mobile, Alabama. She was a young Republican in Alabama. I was a young Republican in New York County for Fifth Avenue and Harlem. Now, she was a member of Sigma, 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 a sorority. I was Alpha Chi Sigma a professional fraternity for chemists. She taught Sunday school. I taught school for eight years, and that's how I put my way through college. Now, she taught Sunday school as well. So let's just deal with the lesson in Sunday school. There's a, a canal. It's called the Canal of the Pharaohs down by the salt marshes. And this is how the Jews allegedly left Egypt through the Sinai Desert. Now, this canal connected the Red Sea to the first river branch leading into off of the Nile. This is how they brought their ships in. This is how they brought all their cargo in. But it would get silt built up. They would have to remove this silt in order for the ships to keep moving in. They had canals built. Unfortunately, if you don't remove the silt, you can't move the ships. And that's exactly what trapped Cleopatra VII when she asked Mark Anthony to stage a diversion so that Octavian couldn't get to her. She was going to make an end run out the Pharaoh's Canal into the Red Sea and escape with the treasure of Egypt, the treasury. Didn't work out. Octavia got her and killed her. She didn't die with an asp. She was tortured to death. And coincidentally, you want to talk about Joseph, the man who dreamed of the seven years of hardship. Well, that's because he dreamt of Al-Fayyum, which is the canal that comes off the Nile and leads into a maze in which the water from the Nile threads through and the silt drops out. 
so that by the time the water leaves the one exit of the maze, which happens to be the same maze on the floor of the entrance of the Chartres Cathedral in France, the most prestigious cathedral in all of France has the exact maze of the water system on its entrance floor. If you don't take the silt out of the maze, the water doesn't flow through and you don't get the silt dropping out and you cannot have a fresh flow of water into a piping system. That's what Joseph's dream was about, to desilt the maze and let the water begin running again. So the entire aqua system that leads along the west bank of the Nile to give the people potable water. So with that, you may want to know that they have a lot of children. Melania has one. She has a special needs child. Now, I've already brought up the fact that I worked with mentally retarded children, and gee, Mary Blackshear Sessions also works with families who had children with congenital birth defects. So she knows how to handle these things. Her husband is going to be the U.S. attorney, and he is going to be in charge of prosecuting anybody that steps out of line. Well, I read Robert Kennedy is also junior, is going to be um, heading some sort of special, uh, what they call it, special committee or something. It's not a, it's not an appointed uh, congressional, you know, it doesn't have to be confirmed, but it's going to be some sort of uh, czar-like thing where he's going to be looking at vaccines and the CDC. Well, my point of view is that any type of a heroin user, and he is a intravenous heroin abuser, user, still does drugs, may have been implicated in his wife's murder. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Yes. And I don't think that he's an appropriate choice. I think he's somebody who's going to give up the football on the ninth yard. He'll fumble on purpose. That's what Massachusetts is all about. So I say this because Melania needs to be introduced as the first wife with everything that goes with it. Because if you don't, then every wife or every spouse who's in Congress, because we now know that the Emily's List money from Madoff has purchased over 20 women's position in the Senate. They have purchased their Senate positions with Madoff money. And at the end of the second half, we are going to discuss how that Madoff money also built 140 federal courts to which Senator Sessions will be U.S. attorney and reside over. Okay. Well, we're getting close to the break, so I got a question here because you didn't really uh, clarify. Now you're in Washington. You were in Washington D.C., and this is something I don't. I don't get, and I'm thinking the listeners don't get either. What exactly is the problem that whoever has a problem with Trump's wife? 
What's their problem? I mean, what what do they got against this woman? I mean, you know, we both seem to agree that really she hasn't done anything yet. So what's the what's the beef against her just because she's married to Donald Trump or is there something else? Like all beautiful women, she's being accused of being a whore and paid for it and married Donald for it. You mean like every other woman in Washington, D.C.? So, see, now, I'm not really getting... I'm married not getting last year sessions. I want you to hear what Frank just said. Like every other woman in Washington, D.C. Now, Frank... My probably, hey, and, you know, not to disparage American women... It's probably the same in every capital of every country on the planet, too. Frank, my mother worked in D.C. until she was 35. And she, in fact, sheltered Senator Jacobs, Javits, I'm sorry, Senator Javits' secretary, Helen. They both worked at the phone company down on F Street. And, you know, they were going to beat the hell out of Helen. Because she, they were going to cross the picket line for the phone company. But they wouldn't touch Helen. Because my mom, who was one of the most beautiful women in D.C. And could walk into any black jazz club. And no one would even think of putting a hand on her. Or say anything disrespectful. Walked her across that line. Like so I said, you have to, to understand what some women in D.C. stand for, what some families stand for. And well, like that, I said, Dean, I think you're living in the past. I think the culture of Washington, D.C. has changed quite a bit, too, since you grew up there. All I'm asking is that Mary Sessions personally escort Melania to meet every senator's wife. Well, that would be a nice that would be a nice gesture for somebody to do. And with that, I'd like to suggest that Melania wear something appropriate for the inaugural address. It's going to be about forty-eight degrees, and I would suggest I sent you samples. <laughs> I see them. I was wondering I, what that was about, but now I get it. Okay. I would say something equestrian. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Hey, nice choices, by the way. Nice, elegant, pared down, shows that you're a horsewoman, shows that you're ready to take care of things, and you're not upstaging your husband, and you're all about your kids. And with that, hit it, Frank.
shown that the farm soil we get our vegetables from is dead, meaning it is depleted of minerals. Sulfur is a mineral. Sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts and flushes inorganic minerals from your body. These are minerals your body cannot process and can interfere with your proper body functions. Distilled water does flush these inorganic materials from your body and is an effective and natural way to cleanse your body. ABR sells a distiller that distills one gallon every three and a half hours. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com, click on the Superstore, go to the distiller, check the pricing and how to order, and watch the video explaining in detail why distilled water is pure water.
Frank Report. I'm your host, Francis Stephan. You're listening right here on American Voice Radio Network. It's about 9.41 and a half out here on the Pacific Time Coast, Monday, January 16, 2017. If that's when it is where you're at, we're live. Go to theamericanvoice.com or americanvoiceradio.com, avrn1.com or avrn.tv. That will... Any one of those will get you to the same place. Well, virtually the same place. Not exactly all the time, but hey, good enough, close enough, it'll work for you. Once you get there, uh, everything you need to know about the network is found on those pages. But uh, if you'd like to participate, you can do so in our chat room. You'll see it. You'll find it. It says AVRN chat over on the left-hand side or the menu section if you're on a mobile phone. So there you have it. And, uh, you know, you don't have to participate in the show if you don't want. You can just go in there and socialize if you'd like. That's fine. There's no rules about uh, you have to talk about what the hosts are talking about or anything like that. You can talk about, you know, pretty much what you want to talk about in there. The chat room is there for you listeners. So anyhow, it is Monday night. This is the second hour, and that means we got Dean Lauren live with us from New York City. Nice mix, Dean. Well, yes, that's Phil Collins starting off. 
And then there was Arif and Fan Bingbing. That was from One Surprise Night, a big hit. Well, I can guarantee you I would have never guessed that. And then ending with Phil Collins. I, I, got, I got the Phil Collins part, but the Bing Bing part, no. Didn't get that. It's a great. Fan Bing Bing is, uh, she was in the X-Men, the last X-Men. Oh, I, have, I watched that. Okay. Yeah. And she's the one who makes the time warp that tries to stop the Centurions from coming through. And sings. And sings. And is very, has her own studio. Very One of the highest ranking actresses in China. Wow, so, like a, like uh, a uh, what do you call that, a uh, renaissance woman. Most women in China, for those people that don't realize it, are relegated to keeping the finances of the family and the business. Huh. Now, now, the husband may be in the shop moving the merchandise, selling the merchandise, keeping it moving, but it will be... The wife, the first wife who maintains the books, who does the loans, who borrows the money, who keeps everything paid. The mistress is included. Everything. She runs the house and the business. Well, a lot of men in America have that going on, too. (coughs) There you go. Anyway, the name of the band I played was Blackstone Cherry, just so people out there know. Now, one of the issues that I forgot to mention that for Mary Blackshear Sessions is that I'm also an attorney like her husband. And although my license was denied for lack of character because I was going to stand up to defend the women who had exposed Madoff, this was just a recent revelation that came out. And then it was Charlie Modler of Struck and Struck who was instrumental in the Madoff scam. And uh, I'll explain that because now it's very interesting that in the studio that I work with and Mary Blackshear sessions, I want you to know that I've kept an open mic for musicians in New York for the last since 2004 to come on and play live music bands. I've had major, major musicians come on and On both the elections of 2012 uh, and 16, my studio time was misappropriated by Chris Gethardt to do a political outreach to get out the vote for Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2012. That was illegal. There is no other way to do it. You have a 501c3 putting out a political message for 12 hours on Time Warner. That is against all policy. It's written down in the contract, but they did it anyway, and they screwed me to the wall seven days from Sunday. So I sued Chris Gethardt in my lawsuit against Time Warner and Manhattan Neighborhood Network and the various people in the studio and it turns out that I had to serve Chris Gethardt because the judge, Judge Engelmeyer, and of course, Jeff Sessions, who's on the Judiciary Committee, can explain this to you, Miss Sessions, Miss Blackshear Sessions, that 
Each senator has a nomination committee. Chuck Schumer, on his nomination committee, had appointed his brother, Robert Schumer, of Paul Weiss. This was the law firm that blacklisted me in 94. Robert Schumer was the man who put Engelmeyer's name up for nomination to Chuck Schumer. So it's kind of funny that I'm in front of this judge. And then all of a sudden, he strikes Robert Schumer's name from the docket in my caption, which is illegal. And your husband can verify that. You cannot change the caption. You may drop a person. You may say that there is no jurisdiction over the person, but the docket stays as it was originally written. And there's good reasons for that so that people can see the history of the lawsuit, who was in fact named in the original complaints. So it turns out that in fact, Chris Gethart, in return for doing this 12 hour marathon, which abscommed illegally with our time and forced us into a small studio while he enjoyed a large studio with all his quote-unquote white friends, Miss Blackshear Sessions. Because you see, Mary, there were no black people in Chris Gethart's Get Out the Vote. But there was a room full of black people where our musicians were singing on both times in 2012 and 2016. And in fact, we had one Scottish person and a Japanese person singing from Simple Minds. Now, so, get out the vote, you mean get out the vote for Democrats, right? For Hillary. In fact, he would actually put out on the Internet through MNN that he was calling the election as early as 12 noon when they started that Hillary Clinton was the, in fact, winner. Now, in return for doing this, Judd Apatow, A-P-A-T-O-W, the man who did the 40-year-old virgin movie, and I think he might have done Hangover, but I'm not sure. He gave Chris Gethart a run off Broadway to pay him back. So I and another producer walked into Chris Gethart's career suicide at the Lynn Redgrave Theater, and we personally served him. I didn't, but I had the satisfaction of knowing Chris Gethart was personally served, and that I'm bringing Jude Apatow into this now. The quote, outspoken Jew in Hollywood who has nothing good to say about Melania's husband, but yet would be the first person to take time away in a studio from a Cherokee and a band of musicians without any thought. And in fact, the woman that is now running the show because I'm banned from the studio for standing up against the sale of the studio is half black and half Puerto Rican. 
we run a very international type show in New York City with musicians. Unfortunately, Chris Gethart, like Chuck Schumer's office, runs an all-white ensemble. And in fact, when you walk into Chuck Schumer's senatorial office in D.C., Melania, you will see that he has the black folk working the phones at the front desk only. And that he has been called on the carpet to perhaps have somebody of a little bit higher rank and a little bit more melanin-challenged running his staff or assisting his staff instead of the quote-unquote exiles from Bialystoko Temple and High Central Temple to which Chuck Schumer belongs and to which was the epicenter of the Madoff Ponzi scheme that stole billions, we're talking $50 billion, that will be used to build 114 federal courts across the nation to which Senator Jeff Sessions will be the U.S. attorney. They built these courts with private money and are charging the GSA top dollar in rental monies. They are privately owned, and Donald Trump is being coerced to flip these buildings so that the government judges will vacate and they can make co-ops out of them. Where are these judges going to go? Why, they're going to go into a brand new spanking building built top dollar, built with private money offshore. Now, Mary Sessions, Blackshear, Blackshear Sessions, let me get this right. When you escort Melania, now Melania is rumored to be a very intelligent woman. We certainly know that she's very beautiful. She speaks several languages. so And she can give a pretty good speech. There you go. She also understands what a mortgage is. Now, let me explain to you, Mary Blackshear Sessions, how this went. In 1953, the United States was in bankruptcy because of World War II in bailing out Britain and France and all of NATO, which will be formed. We are now entering the Korean War. Nelson Rockefeller comes up with the plan to mortgage the United States in return for oil leases on all the federal lands, Rockefeller will advance cash to float the U.S. Treasury. 1954. In return, Ike Eisenhower, General Eisenhower, President Eisenhower, President of Columbia University, will come in, invite Nelson Rockefeller to revamp 14 departments in the United States. Health and education, everything from the environmental down to the factories for his benefit. 
in return for the mortgage. Now, a mortgage is for 30 years. Is that not correct, Frank? Uh, common. Yeah, that, that's the most common. You can get a 15, but yeah, most common. So this is means and, yeah, and you know what else? Now they're States. going up, too. They're going up to uh, 45-year mortgages now because things are so expensive. So now, in 1984, the mortgages do. We have just come out of the Vietnam War. We are totally crippled, and we are now going into what is perceived a cold war with OPEC. But it still costs a lot of money. Therefore, we are forced under Ronald Reagan to mortgage the United States a second time to Nelson Rockefeller's family, now living, that would be David Rockefeller, and Herbert Bush, George Herbert let me Walker. A, let me ask you just a sidebar on this. It, it is along with what you're saying, though. What did Nelson Rockefeller specifically gain by being vice president for the short period of time that he was. He was shooting for president. He was able to, in 1974, do all the financing that will come up in 1984 for the fracking. He will arrange the second mortgage of the United States based on cracking our aquifers and destroying our fresh water in order to release the gas, the natural gas under our farmlands that are now poisoned with fracking acids. And our aquifers are now drained because of the water used to pump the gas. Now, Dean, I don't know anything about this, but I'm asking you, and I would suspect that these same players probably have a pretty big stake in all this bottled water stuff. Absolutely. That is what the biggest commodity will be or should have been in 2014. But what happened was, Melania, and you can explain this to Mary Blackshear Sessions, (laughs) that you're only allowed two mortgages, and then the bank comes to collect. But you see, we had a problem. No, we didn't have a problem. We had a savior. Now, a lot of people don't think he's a savior because he's black. But Obama said, no, I'm not letting the gas out of the ground because the moment the natural fracking gas goes out of the ground, it's contracted to be delivered by the Bushes and the Rockefellers to Angela Merkel below cost. Therefore, our petrodollar, our fracking dollars, would have been worth zero. We have no gold. We only have the gas and the oil under the federal lands of which the Bundys challenged and also challenged on their homesteading rights. And here we are. In 2014, the end of the 30-year second mortgage. Okay, a couple of quick questions because we're running out of time, and I've been reading. 
news, and uh, it doesn't seem like Merkel and Trump are going to be great pals. Now, it seems to me that Trump will probably go about releasing uh, the gas, but it doesn't seem likely that it's going to be going to Merkel. So what's going to happen? Well, you have to understand that in 2014, something radical happened. The U.S. generals that were in a queue with NATO, which is obsolete, attempted to take over Saudi Arabia by using Hannibal, that's Hannibal as in out of Libya, and Alexander of Mesopotamia. And uh, his father would have been, um, uh, what's his name, starts with a P. He was the big, big, big guy before the Caesars. Okay. And uh, they will use their battle plans to form Arab Spring, Melania. You can take Maria Black, uh, Mary Blackshear right through all of it. You were in Eastern Europe. You know, you'll take them right through the campaigns of Hannibal and Alexander and show that they match Arab Spring and that they were going to assault the Saudi Arabian airport just like they did the Iran airport in 1979, kill the king, kill the crown prince. They had already killed two crown princes and seize the gas and oil of Saudi Arabia. That didn't happen. The king died. The crown prince assumed the throne. King Salman is now on the throne. And he dropped the price of oil to $45 overnight. Yeah, he did. Dean, we are out of time. We're actually. And so with that, I say, Melania, we have, on behalf of all the centurions, we have waited a very long time for you. And with that, Frank... You can hit it with the end music. Well, yeah, we're going to have a little different end music. We'll see how this is. And, folks, we will see you again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. and medical views presented on various shows heard on American Voice Radio Network are not necessarily the views held by the management of American Voice Radio and are not presented as an endorsement by this network. All statements heard on American Voice Radio are the sole responsibility and opinion of those who speak the particular statement. Lysander Spooners, No Treason. 
The Constitution of No Authority, Part 1. The Constitution has no inherent authority or obligation. It has no authority or obligation at all unless there's a contract between man and man. And it does not so much as even purport to be a contract between persons now existing. It purports, at most, to be only a contract between persons living 80 years ago. This essay was written in 1869. And it can be supposed to have been a contract then only between persons who had already come to years of discretion, so far as to be competent to make reasonable and obligatory contracts. Furthermore, we know, historically, that only a small portion, even of the people then existing, were consulted on the subject, or asked, or permitted, to express either their consent or dissent in any formal manner. Those persons, if any, who did give their consent formally, are all dead now. Most of them have been dead 40, 50, 60, or 70 years. And the Constitution, so far, was their contract died with them. They had no natural power or right to make it obligatory upon their children. It is not only plainly impossible in the nature of things that they could bind their posterity, but they did not even attempt to bind them. That is to say, the instrument does not purport to be an agreement between anybody but the people then existing, nor does it either expressly or impliedly assert any right, power, or disposition on their part to bind anybody but themselves. Let us see. Its language is... We, the people of the United States, that is, the people then existing in the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. It is plain in the first place that this language as an agreement purports to be only what it at most really was. That is to say, a contract between the people then existing, and, of necessity, binding as a contract only upon those then existing. In the second place, the language neither expresses nor implies that they had any intention or desire, nor that they imagined that they had any right or power to bind their posterity to live under it. It does not say that their posterity will, shall, or must live under it. It only says, in effect that their hopes and motives in adopting it were that it might prove useful to their posterity as well as to themselves by promoting their union, safety, tranquility, liberty, etc. Suppose an agreement were entered into in this form. We, the people of Boston, agree to maintain a fort on Governor's Island to protect ourselves and our posterity against invasion. This agreement, as an agreement, would clearly bind nobody but the people then existing. Secondly, it would assert no right, power, or disposition on their part to compel their posterity to maintain such a fort. It would only indicate that the supposed welfare of their posterity was one of the motives that induced the original parties to enter into the agreement. When a man, sa man says he is building a house for himself and his posterity, he does not mean to be understood as saying that he has any thought of binding them nor is it to be inferred that he is so foolish as to imagine that he has any right or power to bind them to live in it. So far as they are concerned, he only means to be understood as saying that his hopes and motives in building it are that they, or at least some of them, may find it for their happiness to live in it. So when a man says he is planting a tree for himself and his posterity, he does not mean to be understood as saying that he has any thought of compelling them nor is it to be inferred that he is such a simpleton as to imagine that he has any right or power to compel them to eat the fruit. So far as they are concerned, he only means to say that his hopes and motives in planting the tree are that its fruit may be agreeable to them. 
So it was with those who originally adopted the Constitution. Whatever may have been their personal intentions, the legal meaning of their language so far as their posterity was concerned simply was that their hopes and motives in entering into the agreement were that it might prove useful and acceptable to their posterity, that it might promote their union, safety, tranquility, and welfare, and that it might tend to secure to them the blessings of liberty. The language does not assert, nor at all imply, any right, power, or disposition on the part of the original parties to the agreement to compel their posterity to live under it. If they had intended to bind their posterity to live under it, they should have said that their object was not to secure to them the blessings of liberty, but to make them slaves of them. For if their posterity are bound to live under it, they are nothing less than the slaves of their foolish, tyrannical, and dead grandfathers. It cannot be said that the Constitution formed the people of the United States for all time into a corporation. It does not speak of the people as a corporation, but as individuals. A corporation does not describe itself as we, nor as people, nor as ourselves. Nor does a corporation in legal language have any posterity. It supposes itself to have, and speaks of itself as having, perpetual existence as a single individuality. Moreover, no body of men, existing at any one time, have the power to create a perpetual corporation. A corporation can become practically perpetual only by the voluntary accession of new members as the old ones die off. But for this voluntary accession of new members, the corporation necessarily dies with the death of those who originally composed it. Legally speaking, therefore, there is in the Constitution nothing that professes or attempts to bind the posterity of those who established it. If, then, those who established the Constitution had no power to bind and did not attempt to bind their posterity, the question arises whether their posterity have bound themselves. If they have done so, they can have done so in only one or both of these two ways, that is to say, by voting and paying taxes. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 2. Let us consider these two matters, voting and tax paying, separately, and first the voting. All the voting that has ever taken place under the Constitution has been of such a kind that it not only did not pledge the whole people to support the Constitution, but it did not even pledge any one of them to do so, as the following considerations show. 1. In the very nature of things, the act of voting could bind nobody but the actual voters. But owing to the property qualifications required, it is probable that, during the first 20 or 30 years under the Constitution, not more than one-tenth, fifteenth, or perhaps twentieth of the whole population, black and white, men, women, and minors, were permitted to vote. Consequently, so far as voting was concerned, not more than one-tenth, fifteenth, or twentieth of those then existing could have incurred any obligation to support the Constitution. At the present time, it is probable that not more than one-sixth of the whole population are permitted to vote. Consequently, so far as voting is concerned, the other five-sixths can have given no pledge that they will support the Constitution. Two. Of the one-sixth that are permitted to vote, probably not more than two-thirds, about one-ninth of the whole population, have usually voted. Many never vote at all. Many vote only once in two, three, five, or ten years in periods of great excitement. No one, by voting, can be said to pledge himself for any longer period than that for which he votes. If, for example, I vote for an officer who is to hold his office for only one year, I cannot be said to have thereby pledged myself to support the government beyond that term. Therefore, on the ground of actual voting, it probably cannot be said that more than one-ninth or one-eighth of the whole population are usually under any pledge to support the Constitution. Three, it cannot be said that by voting a man pledges himself to support the Constitution unless the act of voting be a perfectly voluntary one on his part. Yet the act of voting cannot properly be called a voluntary one on the part of any very large number of persons who do vote. 
It is rather a measure of necessity imposed upon them by others than by one of their own choice. At this point, I repeat what was said in a former number. In truth, in the case of individuals, their actual voting is not to be taken as proof of consent even for the time being. On the contrary, it is to be considered that without his consent having even been asked, a man finds himself environed by a government that he cannot resist, a government that forces him to pay money, render service, and forego the exercise of many of his natural rights under peril of weighty punishments. He sees, too, that other men practice this tyranny over him by the use of the ballot. He sees further that, if he will but use the ballot himself, he has some chance of relieving himself from this tyranny of others by subjecting them to his own. In short, he finds himself, without his consent, so situated that if he use the ballot, he may become a master. If he does not use it, he must become a slave. And as he has no other alternative than these two, in self-defense, he attempts the former. His case is analogous to that of a man who has been forced into battle, where he must either kill others or be killed himself. Because, to save his own life in battle, a man attempts to take the lives of his opponents, it is not to be inferred that the battle is one of his own choosing. Neither in contest with the ballot, which is a mere substitute for a bullet, because, as his only chance at self-preservation, a man uses a ballot, it is not to be inferred that the contest is one into which he voluntarily entered, that he voluntarily set up all his own natural rights as a stake against those of others, to be lost or won by the mere power of numbers. On the contrary, it is to be considered that in an exigency into which he had been forced by others, and in which no other means of self-defense offered, he, as a matter of necessity, used the only one that was left to him. Doubtless, the most miserable of men, under the most oppressive government in the world, if allowed the ballot, would use it, see any chance of thereby ameliorating their condition. But it would not, therefore, be a legitimate inference that the government itself that crushes them was one which they had voluntarily set up or even consented to. Therefore, a man's voting under the Constitution of the United States is not to be taken as evidence that he ever freely assented to the Constitution, even for the time being. Consequently, we have no proof that any very large portion, even of the actual voters of the United States, ever really involuntarily consented to the Constitution, even for the time being. Nor can we ever have such proof until every man is left perfectly free to consent or not, without thereby subjecting himself or his property to be disturbed or injured by others. As we can have no legal knowledge as to who votes from choice and who from the necessity thus forced upon him, we can have no legal knowledge as to any particular individual that he voted from choice, or, consequently, that by voting he consented or pledged himself to support the government. Legally speaking, therefore, the act of voting utterly fails to pledge any one to support the government fails to prove that the government rests upon the voluntary support of anybody. On general principles of law and reason, it cannot be said that the government has any voluntary supporters at all, until it can be distinctly shown who its voluntary supporters are. 4. As taxation is made compulsory on all, whether they vote or not, a large proportion of those who vote no doubt do so to prevent their own money being used against themselves. When, in fact, they would have gladly abstained from voting if they could thereby have saved themselves from taxation alone, to say nothing of being saved from all the other usurpations and tyrannies of the government. To take a man's property without his consent, and then to infer his consent because he attempts by voting to prevent that property from being used to his injury is a very insufficient proof of his consent to support the Constitution. It is, in fact, no proof at all. As we can have no legal knowledge as to who the particular individuals are, if there are any, who are willing to be taxed for the sake of voting, we can have no legal knowledge that any particular individual consents to be taxed for the sake of voting, or consequently consents to support the Constitution. 
2005. At nearly all elections, votes are given for various candidates for the same office. Successful candidates cannot properly be said to have voted to sustain the Constitution. They may, with more reason, be supposed to have voted not to support the Constitution, but especially to prevent the tyranny which they anticipate the successful candidate intends to practice upon them on the color of the Constitution, and thereby may reasonably be supposed to have voted against the Constitution itself. This supposition is the more reasonable, inasmuch as such voting is the only mode allowed to them of expressing their dissent to the Constitution. 6. Many votes are usually given for the candidates who have no prospect of success. Those who give such votes may reasonably be supposed to have voted as they did, with a special intention not to support, but to obstruct the execution of the Constitution, and therefore against the Constitution itself. 7. As all the different votes are given secretly by secret ballot, there is no legal means of knowing from the votes themselves who votes for and who against the Constitution. Therefore, voting affords no legal evidence that any particular individual supports the Constitution. And where there can be no legal evidence that any particular individual supports the Constitution, it cannot legally be said that anybody supports it. It is clearly impossible to have any legal proof of the intentions of large numbers of men where there can be no legal proof of the intentions of any particular one of them. 8. There can be no legal proof of any man's intentions in voting. We can only conjecture them. As a conjecture, it is probable that a very large proportion of those who vote do so on this principle, that is to say, that if, by voting, they could but get the government into their own hands or that of their friends and use its powers against their opponents, they would then willingly support the Constitution. But if their opponents are to have the power and use it against them, then they would not willingly support the Constitution. In short, men's voluntary support of the Constitution is doubtless, in most cases, wholly contingent upon the question whether, by means of the Constitution, they can make themselves masters or are to be made slaves. Such contingent consent as that is, in law and reason, no consent at all. 9. As everybody who supports the Constitution by voting, if there are any such, does so secretly by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid all personal responsibility for the act of his agents or representatives, it cannot legally or reasonably be said that anybody at all supports the Constitution by voting. No man can reasonably or legally be said to do such a thing as to assent to or support the Constitution unless he does it openly and in a way to make himself personally responsible for the acts of his agents, so long as they act in the limits of the power he did delegates to them. 10. As all voting is secret by secret ballot, and as all secret governments are necessarily only secret bands of robbers, tyrants, and murderers, the general fact that our government is practically carried on by means of such voting only proves that there is among us a secret band of robbers, tyrants, and murderers whose purpose is to rob, enslave, and, so far as necessary to accomplish their purposes, murder the rest of the people. The simple fact of the existence of such a band does nothing towards proving that the people of the United States or any one of them voluntarily supports the Constitution. For all the reasons that have now been given, voting furnishes no legal evidence as to who the particular individuals are, if there are any, who voluntarily support the Constitution. It therefore furnishes no legal evidence that anybody supports it voluntarily. So far, therefore, as voting is concerned, the Constitution, legally speaking, has no supporters at all. The ostensible supporters of the Constitution, like the ostensible supporters of most other governments, are made up of three classes, that is to say, one, knaves who see in the government an instrument which they can use for their own aggrandizement and wealth. Two, dupes, a large class, no doubt, each of whom, because he has allowed one voice out of millions in deciding what he may do with his own person and his own property, and because he is permitted to have the same voice in robbing, enslaving, and murdering others, that others have in robbing, enslaving, and murdering himself, is stupid enough to imagine that he's a free man, a sovereign, that this is a free government, a government of equal rights, the best government on earth, and such like absurdities. 
Three, a class who have some appreciation of the evils of government, but either do not see how to get rid of them or do not choose to so far sacrifice their private interests as to give themselves seriously and earnestly to the work of making a change. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 3. Payment of taxes, being compulsory, of course furnishes no evidence that any one voluntarily supports the Constitution. 1. It is true that the theory of our Constitution is that all taxes are paid voluntarily, that our government is a mutual insurance company voluntarily entered into by the people with each other, that each man makes a free and purely voluntary contract with all others who are parties to the Constitution, to pay so much money for so much protection, the same as he does with any other insurance company and that he's just as free not to be protected and not to pay tax as he is to pay a tax and be protected. But this theory of our government is wholly different from the practical fact. The fact is that the government, like a highwayman, says to a man, your money or your life. And many, if not most, taxes are paid under the compulsion of that threat. The government does not indeed waylay a man in a lonely place, spring upon him from the roadside, and holding a pistol to his head proceed to rifle his pockets. But the robbery is nonetheless a robbery on that account, and is far more dastardly and shameful. The highwayman takes solely upon himself the responsibility, danger, and crime of his own act. He does not pretend that he has any rightful claim to your money, or that he intends to use it for your own benefit. He does not pretend to be anything but a robber. He has not required impudence enough to profess to be merely a protector, and that he takes men's money against their will merely to enable him to protect those infatuated travelers, who feel perfectly able to protect themselves, or who do not appreciate his peculiar system of protection. He is too sensible a man to make such professions as these. Furthermore, having taken your money, he leaves you as you wish him to do. He does not persist in following you on the road against your will, assuming to be your rightful sovereign on account of the protection he has forged you. He does not keep protecting you by commanding you to bow down and serve him by requiring you to do this and forbidding you to do that by robbing you of more money as often as, he's, as he finds it for his interest or pleasure to do so, and by branding you as a rebel, a traitor, or an enemy to your country, and shooting you down without mercy if you dispute his authority or resist his demands. He is too much of a gentleman to be guilty of such impostures and insults and villainies as these. In short, he does not, in addition to robbing you, attempt to make you either his dupe or his slave. Proceedings of those robbers and murderers who call themselves the government are directly the opposite of these of the single highwaymen. In the first place, they do not, like him, make themselves individually known, or, consequently, take upon themselves personally the responsibility of their acts. On the contrary, they secretly, by secret ballot, designate some one of their number to commit the robbery in their behalf, while they keep themselves practically concealed. They say to the person thus designated, Go to A and B and say to him, that the government has need of money to meet the expenses of protecting him and his property. If he presumes to say that he has never contracted with us to protect him, and that he wants none of our protection, say to him that that is our business, and not his. That we choose to protect him whether he desires us to do so or not, and that we demand pay, too, for protecting him. If he dares to inquire who the individuals are, who have thus taken upon themselves the title of the government, and who assume to protect him and demand payment of him, without his having ever made any contract with them, say to him that that too is our business, and not his, that we do not choose to make ourselves individually known to him, that we have secretly by secret ballot appointed you, our agent, to give him notice of our demands, and, if he complies with them, to give him in our name a receipt that will protect him against any similar demand for the present year. 
If he refuses to comply, seize and sell enough of his property to pay not only our demands, but all of your own expenses and trouble beside. If you resist the seizure of his property, call upon the bystanders to help you. Doubtless some of them will prove to be members of our band. If in defending his property he should kill any of our band who are assisting you, capture him at all hazards, charge him in one of our courts with murder, convict him, and hang him. If he should call upon his neighbors or any others who like him may be disposed to resist our demands, and they should come in large numbers to his assistance, cry out that they are all rebels and traitors that our country is in danger. Call upon the commander of our hired murderers. Tell him to quell the rebellion and save the country, cost what it may. Tell him to kill all who resist, though they should be hundreds of thousands, and thus strike terror into all others similarly disposed. See that the work of murder is thoroughly done, that we may have no further trouble of this kind hereafter. When these traitors shall have thus been taught our strength and our determination, they will be good, loyal citizens for many years, and pay their taxes without a why or a wherefore. It is under such compulsion as this that taxes, so-called, are paid. And how much proof the payment of taxes affords that the people consent to support the government, it needs a further argument to show. 2. Still another reason why the payment of taxes applies, implies no consent or pledge to support the government is that the taxpayer does not know and has no means of knowing who the particular individuals are who compose the government. To him, the government is a myth, an abstraction, an incorporality with which he can make no contract, and to which he can give no consent and make no pledge. He knows it only through its pretended agents. The government itself he never sees. He knows indeed by common report that certain persons of a certain age are permitted to vote, and thus to make themselves parts of, or, if they choose, opponents of, the government for the time being. But who of them do thus vote, and especially how each one votes, whether so as to aid or oppose the government, he does not know. The voting being all done secretly by secret ballot. Who, therefore, practically composed the government for the time being, he has no means of knowing. Of course, he can make no contract with them, give them no consent, and make them no pledge. Of necessity, therefore, his paying taxes to them implies, on his part, no contract, consent, or pledge to support them. That is, to support the government or the Constitution. 3. Not knowing who the particular individuals are who call themselves the government, the taxpayer does not know whom he pays his taxes to. All he knows is that a man comes to him representing himself to be an agent of the government. That is, the agent of a secret band of robbers and murderers who have taken to themselves the title of the government and have determined to kill everybody who refuses to give them whatever money they demand. To save his life, he gives up his money to this agent. But as this agent does not make his principles individually known to the taxpayer, the latter, after he has given up his money, knows no more who the government, that is, who, are the, who were the robbers, than he did before. To say, therefore, that by giving up his money to their agent, he entered into a voluntary contract with them, that he pledges himself to obey them, to support them, and to give them whatever money they should demand of him in the future, is simply ridiculous. 4. All political power, as it is called, rests practically upon this matter of money. Any number of scoundrels, having money enough to start with, can establish themselves as a government. Because with money they can hire soldiers, and with soldiers extort more money, and also compel general obedience to their will. It is with government, as Caesar said it was in war, that money and soldiers mutually support each other. That with money he could hire soldiers, and with soldiers extort money. So these villains, who call themselves governments, well understand that their power rests primarily upon money. With money they can hire soldiers, and with soldiers extort money. 
And when their authority is denied, the first use they always make of money is to hire soldiers to kill or subdue all who refuse them more money. For this reason, whoever desires liberty should understand these vital facts. That is to say, one, that every man who puts money into the hands of a government, so-called, puts into his hands a sword which will be used against himself to extort more money from him and also to keep him in subjection to its arbitrary will. Two, that those who will take his money without his consent in the first place will use it for his further robbery and enslavement if he presumes to resist their demands in the future. Three, that it is a perfect absurdity to suppose that any body of men would ever take a man's money without his consent for any such object as they profess to take it for, that is to say, that of protecting him. For why should they wish to protect him if he does not wish them to do so? To suppose that they would do so is just as absurd as it would be to suppose that they would take his money without his consent for the purpose of buying food or clothing for him when he did not want it. 4. If a man wants protection, he is competent to make his own bargains for it, and nobody has any occasion to rob him in order to protect him against his will. 5. That the only security men can have for their political liberty consists in their keeping their money in their own pockets until they have assurances perfectly satisfactory to themselves that it will be used as they wish it to be used for their benefit and not for their injury. 6. That no government so-called can reasonably be trusted for a moment or reasonably be supposed to have honest purposes in view any longer than it depends wholly upon voluntary support. These facts are, so, are all so vital and so self-evident that it cannot reasonably be supposed that anyone will voluntarily pay money to a government for the purpose of securing its protection unless he first makes an explicit and purely voluntary contract with it for the, that purpose. It is perfectly evident, therefore, that neither such voting nor such payment of taxes as usually takes place proves anybody's consent or obligation to support the Constitution. Consequently, we have no evidence at all that the Constitution is binding upon anybody, or that anybody is under any contract or obligation whatever to support it. And nobody is under any obligation to support it. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 4. The Constitution not only binds nobody now, but it never did bind anybody. It never bound anybody, because it was never agreed to by anybody in such a manner as to make it, on general principles of law and reason, binding upon him. It is a general principle of law and reason that a written instrument binds no one until he has signed it. This principle is so inflexible a one that even though a man is unable to write his name, he must still make his mark before he is bound by a written contract. This custom was established ages ago, when few men could write their names. When a clerk, that is, a man who could write, was so rare and valuable a person that even if he were guilty of high crimes, he was entitled to pardon, on the ground that the public could not afford to lose his services. Even at that time, a written contract must be signed, and men who could not write either made their mark or signed their contracts by stamping their seals upon wax affixed to the parchment on which their contracts were written. Hence the custom of affixing seals that has continued to this time. The law holds, and reason declares, that if a written instrument is not signed, the presumption must be that the party to be bound by it did not choose to sign it, or to bind himself by it. And law and reason both give him until the last moment in which to decide whether he will sign it or not. Neither law nor reason requires or expects a man to agree to an instrument until it is written. For until it is written, he cannot know its precise legal meaning. And when it is written, and he has had the opportunity to satisfy himself of the precise legal meaning, he is then expected to decide, and not before, whether he will agree to it or not. And if he do not then sign it, his reason is supposed to be that he does not choose to enter into such a contract. 
the fact that the instrument was written for him to sign or with the hope that he would sign it goes for nothing. Where would the end of fraud in litigation if one party could bring into court a written instrument without any signature and claim to have it in force upon the ground that it was written for another man to sign? That this other man had promised to sign it? That he ought to have signed it? That he had the opportunity to sign it? If he would. But that he had refused or neglected to do so? Yet, that is the most that could ever be said of the Constitution. The very men who drafted it never signed it in any way to bind themselves by it as a contract. And not one of them probably ever would have signed it in any way to bind himself by it as a contract. Yet the very judges who profess to derive all their authority from the Constitution, from an instrument that nobody ever signed, would spurn any other instrument not signed that should be brought before them for adjudication. Moreover, a written instrument must, in law and reason, not only be signed, but must also be delivered to the party or to someone for him. The signing is of no effect unless the instrument be also delivered. And a party is at perfect liberty to refuse to deliver a written instrument after he has signed it. He is as free to refuse to deliver it as he is to refuse to sign it. The Constitution was not only never signed by anybody, but it was never delivered by anybody or to anybody's agent or attorney. It can therefore be of no more validity as a contract than any other instrument that was never signed or delivered. By Sandra Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 5. As further evidence of the general sense of mankind, as to the practical necessity there is that all men's important contracts, especially those of a permanent nature, should be both written and signed, the following facts are pertinent. For nearly 200 years, that is, since 1677, there has been on the Statute Book of England, and the same in substance, if not precisely in letter, has been reenacted, and is now in force, in nearly or quite all the states of this Union, a statute, the general object of which is to declare that no action shall be brought to enforce contracts of the more important class unless they are put in writing and signed by the parties to be held chargeable upon them. The principle of the statute, be it observed, is not merely that written contracts shall be signed, but also that all contracts, except those specially exempted, generally those that are for small amounts and are to remain in force but a short time, shall be both written and signed. The reason of the statute on this point is that it is now so easy a thing for men to put their contracts in writing and sign them, and their failure to do so opens the door to so much doubt, fraud, and litigation, that men who neglect to have their contracts of any considerable importance, written and signed, ought not to have the benefit of courts of justice to enforce them. And this reason is a wise one, and that experience has confirmed its wisdom and necessity is demonstrated by the fact that it has been acted upon in England for nearly 200 years, and has been so nearly universally adopted in this country, and that nobody thinks of repealing it. We all know, too, how careful most men are to have their contracts written and signed even when the statute does not require it. For example, most men, if they have money due them, of no larger amount than 5 or $10, are careful to take a note for it. If they buy even a small bill of goods, paying for it at the time of delivery, they take a receipted bill for it. If they pay a small balance of a book account or any other small debt previously contracted, they take a written receipt for it. Furthermore, the law everywhere, probably, in our country, as well as in England, requires that a large class of contracts, such as wills, deeds, etc., shall not only be written and signed, but also sealed, witnessed, and acknowledged. And in the case of married women conveying their rights in real estate, the law in many states 
requires that the women shall be examined separate and apart from their husbands and declare that they sign their contracts free of any fear or compulsion of their husbands. Such are some of the precautions which the laws require and which individuals, for motives of common prudence, even in cases not required by law, take to put their contracts in writing and have them signed and to guard against all uncertainties and controversies in regard to their meaning and validity. And yet, we have what purports, or professes, or is claimed to be a contract, the Constitution, made 80 years ago by men who are now all dead, and who never had any power to bind us, but which, it is claimed, has nevertheless bound three generations of men, consisting of many millions, and which, it is claimed, will be binding upon all the millions that are to come, but which nobody ever signed, sealed, delivered, witnessed, or acknowledged and which few persons, compared with the whole number that are claimed to be bound by it, have ever read, or even seen, or ever will read or see. And of those who have ever read it, or ever will read it, scarcely any two, perhaps no two, have ever agreed, or ever will agree, as to what it means. Moreover, this supposed contract, which would not be received in any court of justice sitting under its authority, if offered to prove a debt of five dollars, owing by one man to another, is one by which, as it is generally interpreted by those who pretend to administer it, all men, women, and children throughout the country and through all time surrender not only all their property, but also their liberties and even lives into the hands of men who by the supposed contract are expressly made wholly irresponsible for their disposal of them. And we are so insane or so wicked as to destroy property and lives without limit in fighting to compel men to fulfill a supposed contract which, inasmuch as it has never been signed by anybody, is, on general principles of law and reason, such principles as we are all governed by in regard to other contracts, the merest waste paper, binding upon nobody, fit only to be thrown into the fire, or, if preserved, preserved only to serve as a witness and a warning of the folly and wickedness of mankind. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 6. It is no exaggeration, but a literal truth, to say that, by the Constitution, not as I interpret it, but as it is interpreted by those who pretend to administer it, the properties, liberties, and lives of the entire people of the United States are surrendered unreservedly into the hands of men who, it is provided by the Constitution itself, shall never be questioned as to any disposal they make of them. Thus, the Constitution, Article 1, Section 6, provides that, for any speech or debate, or vote, in either house, they, the senators and representatives, shall not be questioned in any other place. The whole lawmaking power is given to these senators and representatives when acting by a two-thirds vote. And this provision protects them from all responsibility for the laws they make. The Constitution also enables them to secure the execution of all their laws by giving them power to withhold the salaries of and to impeach or remove all judicial and executive officers who refuse to execute them. Thus, the whole power of the government is in their hands, and they are made utterly irresponsible for the use they make of it. What is this but absolute irresponsible power? It is no answer to this view of the case to say that these men are under oath to use their power only within certain limits. For what care they, or what should they care, for oaths or limits, when it is expressly provided by the Constitution itself that they shall never be questioned or held to any responsibility whatever for violating their oaths or transgressing those limits? Neither is it any answer to this view of the case to say that the particular individuals holding this power can be changed once in two or six years. For the power of each set of men is absolute during the term for which they hold it. 
And when they can hold it no longer, they are succeeded by men whose powers will be equally absolute and irresponsible. And neither is it any answer to this view of the case to say that the men holding this absolute irresponsible power must be men chosen by the people or portions of them to hold it. A man is nonetheless a slave because he is allowed to choose a new master once in a term of years. Neither are people any less slaves because permitted periodically to choose new masters. What makes them slaves is the fact that they are now, and are always hereafter to be, in the hands of men whose power over them is, and always will be, absolute and irresponsible. Of what appreciable value is it to any man, as an individual, that he is allowed a voice in choosing these public masters? His voice is only one of several millions. See, the right of absolute and irresponsible dominion is the right of property. And the right of property is the right of absolute, irresponsible dominion. The two are identical, the one necessarily implying the other. Neither can exist without the other. If, therefore, Congress have that absolute and irresponsible lawmaking power, which the Constitution, according to their interpretation of it, gives them, it can only be because they own us as property. If they own us as property, they are our masters. And their will is our law. If they do not own us as property, they are not our masters, and their will, as such, is of no authority over us. But these men who claim and exercise this absolute and irresponsible dominion over us dare not be consistent, and claim either to be our masters or to own us as property. They say that they are only our servants, agents, attorneys, and representatives. But this declaration involves an absurdity, a contradiction. No man can be my servant, agent, attorney, or representative, and be, at the same time, uncontrollable by me, and irresponsible to me for his acts. It is of no importance that I appointed him and put all power into his hands. If I made him uncontrollable by me and irresponsible to me, he is no longer my servant, agent, attorney, or representative. If I gave him absolute irresponsible power over my property, I gave him the property. If I gave him absolute irresponsible power over myself, I made him my master and gave myself to him as a slave. And it is of no importance whether I called him master or servant, agent or owner. The only question is, what power did I put into his hands? Was it an absolute and irresponsible one, or a limited and responsible one? For still another reason, they are neither our agents, servants, attorneys, nor representatives. And, for that, and that reason is that we do not make ourselves responsible for their acts. If a man is my servant, agent, or attorney, I necessarily make myself responsible for all his acts done within the limits of the power I have entrusted to him. If I have entrusted him as my agent, with either absolute power or any power at all, over the persons or property of other men, other than myself, I thereby necessarily make myself responsible to those other persons for any injuries he may do to them, so long as he acts within the limits of the power I have granted him. But no individual who may be injured in his person or property by acts of Congress can come to the individual electors and hold them responsible for these acts of their so-called agents or representatives. This fact proves that these pretended agents of the people, of everybody, are really the agents of nobody. If, then, nobody is individually responsible for the acts of Congress, the members of Congress are nobody's agents. And if they are nobody's agents, they are themselves individually responsible for their own acts, and for their acts of all whom they employ. And the authority they are exercising is simply their own individual authority. And, by the law of nature, the highest of all laws, anybody injured by their acts, anybody who is deprived by them 
of his property or his liberty, has the same right to hold him individually responsible that he has to hold any other trespasser individually responsible. He has the same right to resist them and their agents that he has to resist any other trespassers. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 7. It is plain, then, that on general principles of law and reason, such principles as we all act upon in courts of justice and in common life, the Constitution is no contract, that it binds nobody, and never did bind anybody, and that all those who pretend to act by its authority are really acting without any legitimate authority at all, that on general principles of law and reason, they are mere usurpers, and that everybody not only has the right, but is morally bound to treat them as such. If the people of this country wish to maintain such a government as the Constitution describes, there is no reason in the world why they should not sign the instrument itself, and thus make known their wishes in an open, authentic manner, in such manner as the common sense and experience of mankind have shown to be reasonable and necessary in such cases, and in such manner as to make themselves, as they ought to do, individually responsible for the acts of the government. But the people have never been asked to sign it, and the only reason why they have never been asked to sign it has been that it has been known that they never would sign it, that they were neither such fools nor knaves as they must needs have been to be willing to sign it, that, at least as it has been practically interpreted, it is not what any sensible and honest man wants for himself, nor such as he has any right to impose upon others. It is, to all moral intents and purposes, as destitute of obligation as the compacts which robbers and thieves and pirates enter into with each other but never sign. If any considerable number of the people believe the Constitution to be good, why do they not sign it themselves and make laws for and administer them upon each other, leaving all other persons who do not interfere with them in peace? Until they have tried the experiment for themselves, how can they have the face to impose the Constitution upon, or even to recommend it to, others? Plainly the reason for such absurd and inconsistent conduct is that they want the Constitution, not solely for any honest or legitimate use it can be of to themselves or others, but for the dishonest and illegitimate power it gives them over the persons and properties of others. But for this latter reason, and all their eulogiums on the Constitution, all their exhortations and all their expenditures of money and blood to sustain it would be wanting. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 8. The Constitution itself, then, being of no authority, on what authority does our government practically rest? On what ground can those who pretend to administer it claim the right to seize men's property, to restrain them of their natural liberty of action, industry and trade, and to kill all who deny their authority to dispose of men's properties, liberties, and lives at their pleasure or discretion? The most they can say in answer to this question is that some half, two-thirds, or three-fourths of the male adults of the country have a tacit understanding they will maintain the government under the Constitution, that they will select by ballot the persons to administer it, and that those persons who may receive a majority or a plurality of their ballots shall act as their representatives and administer the Constitution in their name and by their authority. But this tacit understanding, admitting it to exist, cannot at all justify the conclusion drawn from it a tacit understanding between A, B, and C that they will, by ballot, deputize D as their agent to deprive me of my property, liberty, or life cannot at all authorize D to do so. He is nonetheless a robber, tyrant, and murderer because he claims to act as their agent than he would be if he avowedly acted on his own responsibility alone. Neither am I bound to recognize him as their agent, nor can he legitimately claim to be their agent when he brings no written authority from them accrediting him as such. I am under no obligation to take his word as to who his principles may be, or whether he has any, bringing no credentials 
I have a right to say he has no such authority, even as he claims to have, and that he is therefore intending to rob, enslave, or murder me on his own account. This tacit understanding, therefore, among the voters of the country amounts to nothing as an authority to their agents. Neither do the ballots by which they select their agents avail any more than does their tacit understanding, for their ballots are given in secret, and therefore in a way to avoid any personal responsibility for the acts of their agents. No body of men can be said to authorize a man to act as their agent to the injury of a third person unless they do it in so open and authentic a manner as to make themselves personally responsible for his acts. None of the voters in this country appoint their political agents in any open, authentic manner, or in any manner to make themselves responsible for their acts. Therefore, these pretended agents cannot legitimately claim to really be agents. Somebody must be responsible for the acts of these pretended agents, and if they cannot show any open and authentic credentials from their principles, they cannot in law or reason be said to have any principles. The maxim applies here. That what does not appear does not exist. If they can show no principles, they have none. But even these pretended agents do not themselves know who their pretended principles are. These latter act in secret, for acting by secret ballot is acting in secret as much as if they were to meet in secret conclave in the darkness of the night. And they are personally as much unknown to the agents they select as they are to others. No pretended agent, therefore, can ever know by whose ballot he is selected, or consequently who his real principles are. Not knowing who his principles are, he has no right to say he has any. He can, at most, say only that he is the agent of a secret band of robbers and murderers who were bind by that faith which prevails among confederates in crime, to stand by him if his acts, done in their name, shall be resisted. Men honestly engaged in attempting to establish justice in the world have no occasion to thus act in secret, or to appoint agents to do acts by which they, the principals, are not willing to be responsible. The secret ballot makes a secret government, and a secret government is a secret band of robbers and murderers. Open despotism is better than this. The single despot stands out in the face of all men and says, I am the state. My will is law. I am your master. I take the responsibility of my acts. The only arbiter I acknowledge is the sword. If anyone denies my right, let him try conclusions with me. But a secret government is little less than a government of assassins. Under it, a man knows not who his tyrants are, until they have struck, and perhaps not then. He may guess beforehand as to some of his immediate neighbors but he really knows nothing. The man to whom he would most naturally fly for protection may prove an enemy when the trial comes. This is the kind of government we have, and is the only one we are likely to have until men are ready to say. We will consent to no constitution, except such and one as we are neither ashamed nor afraid to sign, and we will authorize no government to do anything in our name which we are not willing to be personally responsible for. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority. Part 9. What is the motive to the secret ballot? This and only this. Like other Confederates in crime, those who use it are not friends, but enemies, and they are afraid to be known and to have their individual doings known even to each other. They can contrive to bring about a sufficient understanding to enable them to act in concert against other persons. But beyond this, they have no confidence in a friendship among themselves. In fact, they are engaged quite as much in schemes for plundering each other as in plundering those who are not of them. And it is perfectly well understood among them that the strongest party among them will, in certain contingencies, murder each other by the hundreds of thousands, as they lately did do, to accomplish their purposes against each other. Hence they dare not to be known, and have their individual doings known even to each other. And this is avowedly the only reason for the ballot, for a secret government, a government by secret bands of robbers and murderers. And we are insane enough to call this liberty? 
to be a member of the secret band of robbers and murderers is esteemed a privilege and an honor? Without this privilege, a man is considered a slave, but with it a free man? With it, he is considered a free man because he has the same power to secretly, by secret ballot, procure the robbery, enslavement, and murder of another man, and that other man has to procure his robbery, enslavement, and murder? And this they call equal rights? If any number of men, many or few, claim the right to govern the people of this country, let them make and sign an open compact with each other to do so. Let them thus make themselves individually known to those whom they propose to govern, and let them thus openly take the legitimate responsibility of their acts. How many of those who now support the Constitution will ever do this? How many will ever dare openly proclaim their right to govern, or take the legitimate responsibility of their acts? Not one. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 10. It is obvious that, on general principles of law and reason, there exists no such thing as a government created by, or resting upon, any consent, compact, or agreement of the people of the United States with each other. That the only visible, tangible, responsible government that exists is that of a few individuals only, who act in concert and call themselves by the several names of senators, representatives, presidents, judges, marshals, treasurers, collectors, generals, colonels, captains, etc., etc. On general principles of law and reason, it is of no importance whatever that these few individuals profess to be the agents and representatives of the people of the United States. Since they can show no credentials from the people themselves, they were never appointed as agents or representatives in any open, authentic manner. They do not themselves know and have no means of knowing and cannot prove who their principles, as they call them, are individually, and consequently cannot in law or reason be said to have any principles at all. It is obvious, too, that if these alleged principles ever did appoint these pretended agents or representatives, they appointed them secretly, by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid all personal responsibility for their acts, that at most... These alleged principles put these pretended agents forward for the most criminal purposes, that is to say, to plunder the people of their property and restrain them of their liberty, and that the only authority that these alleged principles have for so doing is simply a tacit understanding among themselves that they will imprison, shoot, or hang every man who resists the exactions and restraints which their agents or representatives may impose upon them. Thus, it is obvious that the only visible, tangible government we have is made up of these professed agents or representatives of the secret band of robbers and murderers, who, to cover up or gloss over their robberies and murders, have taken to themselves the title of the people of the United States, and who, on the pretense of being the people of the United States, assert their right to subject to their dominion and to control and dispose of, at their pleasure, all property and persons found in the United States. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 11. On general principles of law and reason, the oaths which these pretended agents of the people take to support the Constitution are of no validity or obligation. And why? For this, if for no other reason, that they are given to nobody. There is no privity, as the lawyers say, that is no mutual recognition, consent, and agreement between those who take these oaths and any other persons. If I go upon Boston Common, and in the presence of a hundred thousand people, men, women, and children, with whom I have no contract on the subject, take an oath that I will enforce upon them the law of Moses, of Lycurgus, of Solon, of Justinian, or of Alfred, that oath is, on general principles of law and reason, of no obligation. It is of no obligation not merely because it is intrinsically a criminal one, but also because it is given to nobody, and consequently pledges my faith to nobody. It is merely given to the winds. It would not alter the case at all to say that among these hundred thousand persons, in whose presence the oath was taken, 
there were two, three, or 5,000 male adults who had secretly, by secret ballot, and in a way to avoid making themselves individually known to me, or to the remainder of the 100,000, designated me secretly and in a manner to prevent my knowing them individually prevents all privity between them and me, and consequently makes it impossible that there could be any contract or pledge of faith on my part towards them, for it is impossible that I can pledge my faith in any legal sense to a man whom I neither know nor have any means of knowing individually. So far as I am concerned, then, these two, three, or five thousand persons are a secret band of robbers and murderers who have secretly, and in a way to save themselves from all responsibility for my acts, designated me as their agent, and have, through some other agent or pretended agent, made their wishes known to me. But being nevertheless individually unknown to me, and having no open, authentic contract with me, my oath is, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity as a pledge of faith to them. And being no pledge of faith to them, it is no pledge of faith to anybody. It is mere idle wind. At most, it is only a pledge of faith to an unknown band of robbers and murderers, whose instrument for plundering and murdering other people I thus publicly confess myself to be. And it has no other obligation than a similar oath given to any other unknown body of pirates, robbers, and murderers. For these reasons, the oaths taken by members of Congress to support the Constitution are, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity. They are not only criminal in themselves and therefore void, but they are also void for the further reason that they are given to nobody. It cannot be said that in any legitimate or legal sense they are given to the people of the United States, because neither the whole nor any large proportion of the whole people of the United States ever either openly or secretly appointed or designated these men as their agents to carry the Constitution into effect. The great body of the people, that is, men, women, and children, were never asked or even permitted to signify in any formal manner, either openly or secretly, their choice or wish on the subject. The most that these members of Congress can say in favor of their appointment is simply this. Each one can say for himself. I have evidence satisfactory to myself that there exists scattered throughout the country a band of men having a tacit understanding with each other and calling themselves the people of the United States, whose general purposes are to control and plunder each other and all other persons in the country, and, so far as they can, even in neighboring countries, and to kill every man who shall attempt to defend his person and property against their schemes of plunder and dominion. Who these men are individually, I have no certain means of knowing, for they sign no papers and give no open, authentic evidence of their individual membership. They are not known individually even to each other. They are apparently as much afraid of being individually known to each other as of being known to other persons. Hence, they ordinarily have no mode either of exercising or of making known their individual membership, otherwise than by giving their votes secretly for certain agents to do their will. But although these men are individually unknown both to each other and to other persons, it is generally understood in the country that none but male persons of the age of 21 years and upwards can be members. It is also generally understood that all male persons born in the country have in certain complexions and in some localities certain amounts of property and in certain cases even persons of foreign birth are permitted to be members. But it appears that usually not more than one-half, two-thirds, or in some cases three-fourths of all who are thus permitted to become members of the band ever exercise or consequently prove their actual membership in the only mode in which they ordinarily can exercise or prove it. That is to say, by giving their votes secretly for the officers or agents of the band. The number of these secret votes, so far as we have any account of them, varies greatly from year to year, thus tending to prove that the band, instead of being a permanent organization, is merely pro tempore affair, with those who choose to act with it for the time being. The gross number of these secret votes, or what purports to be their gross number in different localities, is occasionally published. 
Whether these reports are accurate or not, we have no means of knowing. It is generally supposed that great frauds are often committed in depositing them. They are understood to be received and counted by certain men, who are themselves appointed for that purpose by the same secret process by which all other officers and agents of the band are selected. According to the reports of these receivers of votes, for whose accuracy or honesty, however, I cannot vouch, and according to my best knowledge of the whole number of male persons in my district who, it is supposed, were permitted to vote, it would appear that one-half, two-thirds, or three-fourths actually did vote. Who the men were individually who cast these votes, I have no knowledge, for the whole thing was done secretly. But of the secret votes, thus given for what they call a member of Congress, the receivers reported that I had a majority, or at least a larger number than any other one person. And it is only by virtue of such a designation that I am now here to act in concert with other persons similarly selected in other parts of the country. It is understood among those who sent me here that all the persons so selected will, on coming together at the city of Washington, take an oath in each other's presence to support the Constitution of the United States. By this is meant a certain paper that was drawn up 80 years ago. It was never signed by anybody and apparently has no obligation and never had any obligation as a contract. In fact, few persons ever read it, and doubtless much the largest number of those who voted for me and the others never even saw it, or now pretend to know what it means. Nevertheless, it is often spoken of in the country as the Constitution of the United States. And for some reason or another, the men who send me here seem to expect that I, and all with whom I act, will swear to carry this Constitution into effect. I am therefore ready to take this oath, and to cooperate with all others similarly selected who are ready to take the same oath. This is the most that any member of Congress can say in proof that he has any constituency, that he represents anybody, that his oath to support the Constitution is given to anybody or pledges his faith to anybody. He has no open, written, or other authentic evidence, such as is required in all other cases, that he has ever appointed the agent or representative of anybody. He has no written power of attorney from any single individual. He has no such legal knowledge as is required in all other cases, by which he can identify a single one of them who pretend to have appointed him to represent them. This oath, professedly given to them to support the Constitution, is, on general principles of law and reason, an oath given to nobody. It pledges his faith to nobody. If he fails to fulfill his oath, not a single person can come forward and say to him, you have betrayed me or broken faith with me. No one can come forward and say to him, I appointed you my attorney to act for me. I required you to swear that as my attorney you would support the Constitution. You promised me that you would do so, and now you have forfeited the oath you gave to me. No single individual can say this. No open, avowed, or responsible association or body of men can come forward and say to him, we appointed you our attorney to act for us. We required you to swear that as our attorney you would support the Constitution. You promised us that you would do so, and now you have forfeited the oath you gave to us. No open, avowed, or responsible association or body of men can say this to him, because there is no such association or body of men in existence. If anyone should assert that there is such an association, let him prove, if he can, who compose it. Let him produce, if he can, any open, written, or other authentic contract signed or agreed to by these men, forming themselves into an association, making themselves known as such to the world, appointing him as their agent, and making themselves individually or as an association responsible for his acts done by their authority. Until all this can be shown, no one can say that in any legitimate sense there is any such association, or that he is their agent, or that he ever gave his oath to them, or ever pledged his faith to them. On general principles of law and reason, it would be a sufficient answer for him to say to all individuals and all pretended associations of individuals who should accuse him of a breach of faith to them. I never knew you. Where is your evidence that you, either individually or collectively, ever appointed me your attorney? 
that you ever required me to swear to you that as your attorney I would support the Constitution, or that I have now broken any faith I ever pledged to you. You may or you may not be members of that secret band of robbers and murderers who act in secret, appoint their agents by a secret ballot, who keep themselves individually unknown even to the agents they thus appoint, and who, therefore, cannot claim that they have any agents, or that any of their pretended agents ever gave his oath or pledged his faith to them. I repudiate you altogether. My oath was given to others, with whom you have nothing to do. Or it was idle wind, given only to the idle winds. Begone. Lysander Fuller's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 12. For the same reasons, the oaths of all other pretended agents of the secret band of robbers and murderers are, on general principles of law and reason, equally destitute of obligation. They are given to nobody, but only to the winds. The oaths of the tax gatherers and treasurers of the band are, on general principles of law and reason, of no validity. If any tax gatherer, for example, should put money he receives into his own pocket and refuse to part with it, the members of this band could not say to him, You collected that money as our agent and for our uses, and you swore to pay it over to us or to those we should appoint to receive it. You have betrayed us and broken faith with us. It would be a sufficient answer for him to say to them, I never knew you. You never made yourselves individually known to me. I never gave my oath to you as individuals. You may or may not be members of that secret band who appoint agents to rob and murder other people, but who are cautious not to make themselves individually known either to such agents or to those whom their agents are commissioned to rob. If you are members of that band, you have given me no proof that you ever commissioned me to rob others for your benefit. I never knew you, as individuals, and of course, never promised you that I would pay over to you the proceeds of my robberies. I committed my robberies on my own account and for my own profit. If you thought I was fool enough to allow you to keep yourselves concealed and use me as your tool for robbing other persons, or that I would take all the personal risk for the robberies and pay over the proceeds to you, you are particularly simple. As I took all the risk of my robberies, I propose to take all the profits. Be gone. You are fools as well as villains. If I gave my oath to anybody, I gave it to other persons than you. But I really gave it to nobody. I only gave it to the winds. It answered my purposes at the time. It enabled me to get the money I was after, and now I propose to keep it. If you expected me to pay it over to you, you relied only upon that honor that is said to prevail among thieves. You now understand that is a very poor reliance. I trust you may become wise enough to never rely upon it again. If I have any duty in the matter, it is to give back the money to those whom I took it, not to pay it over to such villains such as you. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 13. On general principles of law and reason, the oaths which foreigners take on coming here and being naturalized, as it is called, are of no validity. They are necessarily given to nobody, because there is no open, authentic association to which they can join themselves or to whom, as individuals, they can pledge their faith. No such association or organization as the people of the United States, having ever been formed by any open, written, authentic, or voluntary contract, there is, on general principles of law and reason, no such association or organization in existence. And all oaths that purport to be given to such an association are necessarily given only to the winds. They cannot be said to be given to any man or body of men as individuals because no man or body of men can come forward with any proof that the oaths were given to them as individuals or to any association of which they are members. To say that there is a tacit understanding among a portion of the male adults of the country that they will call themselves the people of the United States and that they will act in concert in subjecting the remainder of the people of the United States to their dominion, but that they will keep themselves personally concealed by doing all their acts secretly is wholly insufficient, on general principles of law and reason, to prove the existence of any such association or organization as the people of the United States, 
or consequently to prove that the oaths of foreigners were given to any such association. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 14. On general principles of law and reason, all the oaths which, since the war, have been given by Southern men, that they will obey the laws of Congress, support the Union, and the like, are of no validity. Such oaths are invalid not only because they were extorted by military power and threats of confiscation, and because they are in contravention of men's natural right to do as they please about supporting the government, but also because they are given to nobody. They were nominally given to the United States, but being nominally given to the United States, they were necessarily given to nobody, because, on general principles of law and reason, there were no United States to whom the oaths could be given. That is to say, there was no open, authentic, avowed, legitimate association, corporation, or body of men known as the United States or as the people of the United States to whom the oaths could have been given. If anybody says that there was such a corporation, let him state who were the individuals who comprised it and how and when they became a corporation. Were Mr. A, Mr. B, and Mr. C members of it? If so, where are their signatures? Where is the evidence of their membership? Where the record? Where the open, authentic proof? There is none. Therefore, in law and reason, there was no such corporation. On general principles of law and reason, every corporation, association, or organized body of men having a legitimate corporate existence and legitimate corporate rights must consist of certain known individuals who can prove, by legitimate and reasonable evidence, their membership. But nothing of this kind can be proved in regard to the corporation or body of men who call themselves the United States. Not a man of them in all the northern states can prove by any legitimate evidence, such as required to prove membership in other legal corporations, that he himself or any other man whom he can name is a member of any corporation or association called the United States or the people of the United States, or, consequently, that there is any such corporation. And since no such corporation can be proved to exist, it cannot, of course, be proved that the oaths of southern men were given to any such corporation. The most that can be claimed is that the oaths were given to a secret band of robbers and murderers who call themselves the United States and extorted those oaths. But that certainly is not enough to prove that the oaths are of any obligation. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 15. On general principles of law and reason, the oaths of soldiers, that they will serve a given number of years, that they will obey the orders of their superior officers, that they will bear true allegiance to the government, and so forth, are of no obligation. Independently of the criminality of an oath that, for a given number of years, he will kill all whom he may be commanded to kill, without exercising his own judgment or conscience as to the justice or necessity of such killing, there is this further reason why a soldier's oath is of no obligation. That is to say, that, like all the other oaths that have been now mentioned, it is given to nobody there being in no legitimate sense any such corporation or nation as the United States, nor consequently in any legitimate sense any such government as the government of the United States, a soldier's oath given to or contract made with such nation or government is necessarily an oath given to or a contract made with nobody. Consequently, such oath or contract can be of no obligation. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 16. On general principles of law and reason, the treaties, so-called, which purport to be entered into with other nations by persons calling themselves ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators of the United States, in the name and in behalf of the people of the United States, are of no validity. These so-called ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators, who claim to be the agents of the people of the United States for making these treaties, 
can show no open, written, or other authentic evidence that either the whole people of the United States or any other open, avowed, responsible body of men calling themselves by that name ever authorized these pretended ambassadors and others to make treaties in the name of or binding upon any one of the people of the United States or any other open, avowed, responsible body of men calling themselves by that name, ever authorized these pretended ambassadors, secretaries, and others, in their name and behalf, to recognize certain other persons, calling themselves emperors, kings, queens, and the like, as the rightful rulers, sovereigns, masters, or representatives of the different peoples whom they assume to govern, to represent, and to bind. The nations, as they are called, with whom our pretended ambassadors, secretaries, presidents, and senators profess to make treaties, are as much myths as our own. On general principles of law and reason, there are no such nations. That is to say, neither the whole people of England, for example, nor any open, avowed, re responsible body of men calling themselves by that name ever, by any open, written, or other authentic contract with each other, form themselves into any bona fide, legitimate association or organization, or authorize any king, queen, or other representative to make treaties in their name or to bind them, either individually or as an association by such treaties. Our pretended treaties, then, being made with no legitimate or bona fide nations or representatives of nations, and being made on our part by persons who have no legitimate authority to act for us, have intrinsically no more validity than a pretended treaty made by the man in the moon with the king of the Pelides. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 17. On general principles of law and reason, debts contracted in the name of the United States or the people of the United States are of no validity. It is utterly absurd to pretend that debts to the amount of 2,500 millions of dollars are binding upon 35 or 40 millions of people when there is not a particle of legitimate evidence, such as would be required to prove a private debt, that can be produced against any one of them, that either he or his properly authorized attorney ever contracted to pay one cent. Certainly neither the whole people of the United States nor any number of them ever separately or individually contracted to pay a cent to these debts. Certainly also neither the whole people of the United States nor any number of them ever by any open, written, or other authentic or voluntary contract united themselves as a firm corporation or association by the name of the United States or the people of the United States and authorize their agents to contract debts in their name. Certainly too there is in existence no such firm corporation or association as the United States or the people of the United States formed by any open, written, or other authentic and voluntary contract and having corporate property with which to pay these debts. How then is it possible on any general principles of law or reason that debts that are binding upon nobody individually can be binding upon 40 millions of people collectively when on general and legitimate principles of law and reason these 40 millions of people neither have nor ever had any corporate property, never made any corporate or individual contract, and neither have nor ever had any corporate existence. Who then created these debts in the name of the United States? Why? At most, only a few persons calling themselves members of Congress, etc., who pretended to represent the people of the United States, but who really represented only a secret band of robbers and murderers, who wanted money to carry on the robberies and murders in which they were then engaged, and who intended to extort from the future people of the United States by robbery and threats of murder, and real murder, if that should prove necessary, the means to pay these debts. This band of robbers and murderers, who were the real principals in contracting these debts, is a secret one, because its members have never entered into any open, written, avowed, or authentic contract 
by which they may be individually known to the world or even to each other. Their real or pretended representatives who contracted these debts in their name were selected, if selected at all, for that purpose secretly, by secret ballot, and in a way to furnish evidence against none of the principles individually, and these principles were known individually neither to their pretended representatives who contracted these debts in their behalf, nor to those who lent the money. The money, therefore, was all borrowed and lent in the dark, that is, by men who did not see each other's faces, or know each other's names, who could not then and cannot now identify each other as principals in the transactions, and who consequently can prove no contract with each other. Furthermore, the money was all lent and borrowed for criminal purposes, that is, for purposes of robbery and murder, and for this reason, the contracts were all intrinsically void, and would have been so even though the real parties, borrowers and lenders, had come face to face, and made their contracts openly in their own proper names. Furthermore, the secret band of robbers and murderers, who were the real borrowers of this money, having no legitimate corporate existence, have no corporate property with which to pay these debts. They do indeed pretend to own large tracts of wild lands lying between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans, and between the Gulf of Mexico and the North Pole, but, on general principles of law and reason, they might as well pretend to own the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans themselves, or the atmosphere and the sunlight, and to hold them and dispose of them for the payment of these debts. Having no corporate property with which to pay what purports to be their corporate debts, the secret band of robbers and murderers are really bankrupt. They have nothing to pay with. In fact, they do not propose to pay their debts otherwise than from the proceeds of their future robberies and murders. They are confessedly their sole reliance, and were known to be such by the lenders of the money at the time the money was lent, and it was, therefore, virtually a part of their contract that the money should be repaid only from the proceeds of these future robberies and murders. For this reason, if for no other, the contracts were void from the beginning. In fact, these apparently two classes, borrowers and lenders, were really one and the same class. They borrowed and lent money from and to themselves. They themselves were not only part and parcel, but the very life and soul of the secret band of robbers and murderers, who borrowed and spent the money. Individually, they furnished money for a common enterprise, taking in return were purported to be corporate promises for individual loans. The only excuse they had for taking these so-called corporate promises of for individual loans by the same parties was that they might have some apparent excuse for the future robberies of the band, that is, to pay the debts of the corporation, and that they might also know what shares they were to be respectively entitled to out of the proceeds of their future robberies. Finally, if these debts had been created for the utmost innocent and honest purposes, and in the most open and honest manner, by the real parties to the contracts, these parties could thereby have bound nobody but themselves and no property but their own. They could have bound nobody that should have come after them, and no property subsequently created by or belonging to other persons. Lysander Spooner's No Treason, The Constitution of No Authority, Part 18. The Constitution having never been signed by anybody, and there being no other open, written, or authentic contract between any parties whatever, by virtue of which the United States government so-called is maintained, and it being well known that none but male persons of 21 years of age and upwards are allowed any voice in the government, and it also being well known that a large number of those adult persons seldom or never vote at all, and that all those who do vote do so secretly by secret ballot and in a way to prevent their individual votes being known, either to the world or even to each other, and consequently in a way to make no one openly responsible for the acts of their agents or representatives, all these things being known, the questions arise. Who composed the real governing power in this country? 
Who are the men, the responsible men, who rob us of our property, restrain us of our liberty, subject us to their arbitrary dominion, and devastate our homes and shoot us down by the hundreds of thousands if we resist? How shall we find these men? How shall we know them from others? How shall we defend ourselves and our property against them? Who of our neighbors are members of the secret band of robbers and murderers? How can we know which are their houses, that we may burn or demolish them? Which their property, that we may destroy it? Which their persons, that we may kill them, and rid the world and ourselves of such tyrants and monsters? These are questions that must be answered before men can be free, before they can protect themselves against the secret band of robbers and murderers who now plunder and slave and destroy them. The answer to these questions is that only those who have the will and the power to shoot down their fellow men are the real rulers in this, as in all other so-called civilized countries, for by no others will civilized men be robbed or enslaved. Among savages, mere physical strength on the part of one man may enable him to rob, enslave, or kill another man. Among barbarians, mere physical strength on the part of a body of men, disciplined and acting in concert, though with very little money or other wealth, may, under some circumstances, enable them to rob, enslave, or kill another body of men as numerous or perhaps even more numerous than themselves. And among both savages and barbarians, mere want may sometimes compel one man to sell himself as a slave to another. But with so-called civilized peoples, among whom knowledge, wealth, and the means of acting in concert have become diffused, and who have invented such weapons and other means of defense as to render mere physical strength of less importance, and by whom soldiers in any requisite number, and any other instrumentalities of war in any requisite amount, can always be had for money. The question of war, and consequently the question of power, is little else more than a mere question of money. As a necessary consequence, those who stand ready to furnish this money are the real rulers. It is so in Europe, and it is so in this country. In Europe, the nominal rulers, the emperors and kings and parliaments, are anything but the real rulers of their respective countries. They are little or nothing else than mere tools, employed by the wealthy who rob and slave and, if need be, murder those who have less wealth or none at all. The Rothschilds, and that class of moneylenders of whom they are the representatives and agents, men who never think of lending a shilling to the next-door neighbors for purposes of honest industry, unless upon the most ample security and at the highest rate of interest, stand ready at all times to lend money of unlimited amounts to those robbers and murderers who call themselves governments in shooting down those who do not submit quietly to being robbed and enslaved. They lend their money in this manner, knowing that it is to be expended in murdering their fellow men for simply seeking their liberty and their rights, knowing also that neither the interest nor the principal will ever be paid, except as it will be extorted on the terror of the repetition of such murders as those for which the money is lent to be expended. These money lenders, the Rothschilds, for example, say to themselves, if we lend a hundred million sterling to the Queen and Parliament of England, it will enable them to murder twenty, fifty, or a hundred thousand people in England, Ireland, or India, and the terror inspired by such wholesale murder will enable them to keep the whole people of those countries in subjection for twenty, or perhaps fifty years to come, to control all their trade and industry, and to extort from them large amounts of money under the name of taxes, and from the wealth thus extorted from them, they, the Queen and Parliament, can afford to pay us a higher rate of interest for our money than we can get in any other way. Or, if we lend this sum to the Emperor of Austria, it will enable him to murder so many of his people as to strike terror into the rest, and thus enable him to keep them in subjection, and extort money from them for twenty or fifty years to come. And they say the same in regard to the Emperor of Russia, the King of Prussia, the Emperor of France, or any other ruler, so-called, who, in their judgment, will be able, by murdering a reasonable portion of his people, 
to keep the rest in subjection and extort money from them for a long time to come to pay the interest and principal of the money lent him. And why are these men so ready to lend money for murdering their fellow men? Solely for this reason. That is to say that such loans are considered better investments than loans for purposes of honest industry. They pay higher rates of interest, and it is less trouble to look after them. This is the whole matter. The question of making these loans is, with these lenders, a mere question of pecuniary profit. They lend money to be expended in robbing, enslaving, and murdering their fellow men, solely because, on the whole, such loans pay better than any others. They are no respecters of persons, no superstitious fools, that reverence monarchs. They care no more for a king or an emperor than they do for a beggar, except as he is a better customer, and can pay them better interest for their money. If they doubt his ability to make his murder successful for maintaining his power, and thus extorting money from his people in future, they dismiss him as unceremoniously as they would dismiss any other hopeless bankrupt who should want to borrow money to save himself from open insolvency. When these great lenders of blood money, like the Rothschilds, have loaned vast sums in this way for purposes of murder to an emperor or a king, they sell out the bonds taken by them in small amounts to anybody and everybody who are disposed to buy them at satisfactory prices to hold as investments. They, the Rothschilds, thus soon get back their money with great profits, and are now ready to lend money in the same way again to any other robber or murderer called an emperor or a king, necessary to be successful in his robberies and murders, and able to pay a good price for the money necessary to carry them on. The business of lending blood money is one of the most thoroughly sordid, cold-blooded, and criminal that was ever carried on to any considerable extent amongst human beings. It is like lending money to slave traders or to common robbers and pirates to be repaid out of their plunder. And the men who loan money to governments, so-called, for the purpose of enabling the latter to rob, enslave, and murder their people are among the greatest villains the world has ever seen. And they as much deserve to be hunted and killed, if they cannot otherwise be got rid of, as any slave traders, robbers, or pirates that ever lived. When these emperors and kings, so-called, have obtained their loans, they proceed to hire and train immense numbers of professional murderers called soldiers, and employ them in shooting down all who resist their demands for money. In fact, most of them keep large bodies of these murderers constantly in their service as their only means of enforcing their extortions. There are now, I think, four or five millions of these professional murderers constantly employed by the so-called sovereigns of Europe. The enslaved people are, of course, forced to support and pay all these murderers, as well as to submit to all other extortions which these murderers employed to enforce. It is only in this way that most of the so-called governments of Europe are maintained. These so-called governments are in reality only great bands of robbers and murderers organized, disciplined, and constantly on the alert. And the so-called sovereigns in these different governments are simply the heads or chiefs of different bands of robbers and murderers. And these heads or chiefs are dependent upon the lenders of blood money for the means to carry on their robberies and murders. They could not sustain themselves a moment but for the loans made to them by these blood money loan mongers. At first care is to maintain their credit with them, for they know their end has come the instant their credit with them fails. Consequently, the first proceeds of their extortions are scrupulously applied to the payment of the interest on their loans. In addition to paying the interest on their bonds, they perhaps grant to the holders of them great monopolies in banking, like the banks of England, France, and of Vienna, with the agreement that these banks shall furnish money whenever, in sudden emergencies, it may be necessary to shoot down more of their people. Perhaps also, by means of tariffs on competing imports, they give great monopolies to certain branches of industry, in which these lenders of blood money are engaged. They also, by unequal taxation, exempt wholly or partially the property of these loanmongers and throw corresponding burdens upon those who are too poor and weak to resist. Thus it is evident that all these men who call themselves by the high-sounding names of emperors, kings, sovereigns, monarchs, most Christian majesties, most Catholic majesties, 
high mightinesses, most serene and potent princes, and the like, and who claim to rule by the grace of God, by divine right, that is, by special authority from heaven, are intrinsically not only the merest miscreants and wretches engaged solely in plundering, enslaving, and murdering their fellow men, but that they are also the merest hangers-on, the servile, obsequious, fawning dependents and tools of these blood-money lowmongers, on whom they rely for the means to carry on their crimes. These lowmongers, like the Rothschilds, laugh in their sleeves and say to themselves, These despicable creatures who call themselves emperors and kings and majesties, and most serene and potent princes, who profess to wear crowns and sit on thrones, who deck themselves with ribbons and feathers and jewels, and surround themselves with hired flatterers and lickspittles, and whom we suffer to strut around and palm themselves off upon fools and slaves, as sovereigns and lawgivers, specially appointed by Almighty God, and to hold themselves out as the sole fountains of honors and dignity and wealth and power. All these miscreants and impostors know that we make them and use them, that in us they live, move, and have their being, that we require them, as the price of their positions, to take upon themselves all the labor, all the danger, and all the odium of all the crimes they commit for our profit, and that we will unmake them, strip them of their gigaws, and send them out into the world as beggars, or give them over to the vengeance of the people they have enslaved, the moment they refuse to commit any crime we require of them, or to pay over to us such share of the proceeds of their robberies as we see fit to demand. By Sander Spooner's No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority, Part 19. Now, what is true in Europe is substantially true in this country. The difference is the immaterial one, that in this country there is no visible, permanent head or chief of these robbers and murderers who call themselves the government. That is to say, there is no one man who calls himself the state or even emperor, king, or sovereign. No one who claims that he and his children rule by the grace of God, by divine right, or by special appointment from heaven. There are only certain men who call themselves presidents, senators, and representatives, and claim to be the authorized agents for the time being or for certain short periods of all the people of the United States but who can show no credentials or powers of attorney or any other open authentic evidence that they are so, and who notoriously are not so, but are only really the agents of a secret band of robbers and murderers, whom they themselves do not know and have no means of knowing individually, but who they trust will openly or secretly, when the crisis comes, sustain them in all their usurpations and crimes. What is important to be noticed is that these so-called presidents, senators, and representatives, these pretended agents of all the people of the United States, the moment their exactions meet with any formidable resistance from any portion of the people, they themselves are obliged, like their co-robbers and murderers in Europe, to fly at once to the lenders of blood money for the means to sustain their power. And they borrow their money on the same principle and for the same purpose. To be expended in shooting down all those people of the United States, their own constituents and principles as they profess to call them, who resist the robberies and enslavement which these borrowers of money are practicing upon them. And they expect to repay the loans, if at all, only from the proceeds of the future robberies, which they anticipate it will be easy for them and their successors to perpetuate through a long series of years upon the pretended principles, if they can but shoot down some hundreds of thousands of them and thus strike terror into the rest. Perhaps the facts were never made more evident in any country on the globe than in our own, that these soulless, blood-money loanmongers are the real rulers. That the ostensible government, the presidents, senators, and representatives, so-called, are merely their tools, and that no ideas of or regard for justice or liberty had anything to do in inducing them to lend their money for the war. In proof of all this, look at the following facts. Nearly a hundred years ago, we professed to have got rid of all that religious superstition inculcated by a servile and corrupt priesthood in Europe that rulers, so-called, derive their authority directly from heaven, 
and that it was consequently a religious duty on the part of the people to obey them. I professed long ago to have learned that governments could rightfully exist only by the free will and on the voluntary support of those who might choose to sustain them. We all profess to have known long ago that the only legitimate objects of government were the maintenance of liberty and justice equally for all. All this we have professed for nearly a hundred years, and we profess to look with pity and contempt upon those ignorant, superstitious, and enslaved peoples of Europe who were so easily kept in subjection by the frauds and force of priests and kings. Notwithstanding all this that we had learned and known and professed for nearly a century, these lenders of blood money had, for a long series of years previous to the war, been the willing accomplices of the slaveholders in perverting the government from the purposes of liberty and justice to the greatest of crimes. They had been such accomplices for a purely pecuniary consideration, to wit, a control of the markets in the South. In other words, the privilege of holding the slaveholders themselves in industrial and commercial subjection to the manufacturers and merchants of the North who afterwards furnished the money for the war. And these northern merchants and manufacturers, these lenders of blood money, were willing to continue to be the accomplices of the slaveholders in the future for the same pecuniary consideration. But the slaveholders, either doubting the fidelity of their northern allies or feeling themselves strong enough to keep their slaves in subjection without northern assistance, would no longer pay the price which these northern men demanded. And it was to enforce this price in the future, that is to monopolize the southern markets, to maintain their industrial and commercial control over the south, that these northern manufacturers and merchants lent some of the profits of their former monopolies for the war in order to secure to themselves the same or greater monopolies in the future. These, and not any love of liberty or justice, were the motives on which the money for the war was lent by the north. In short, the North said to the slaveholders, if you will not pay us our price, that is, give us control over your markets, for our assistance against your slaves, we will secure the same price, keep control of your markets, by helping your slaves against you, and using them as our tools for maintaining dominion over you. For the control of your markets we will have, whether the tools we use for that purpose be black or white, and be the cost, in blood or money, what it may. On this principle and from this motive, and not from any love of liberty or justice, the money was lent in enormous amounts and at enormous rates of interest. And it was only by means of these loans that the objects of the war were accomplished. And now these lenders of blood money demand their pay. And the government, so-called, becomes their tool, their servile, slavish, villainous tool, to extort it from the labor of the enslaved people both of the North and of the South. And it is to be extorted by every form of direct and indirect and unequal taxation. Not only the nominal debt and interest, enormous as the latter was, are to be paid in full, but these holders of the debt are to be paid still further, and perhaps doubly, triply, or quadruply paid by such tariffs on imports as will enable our home manufacturers to realize enormous prices for their commodities, also by such monopolies in banking as will enable them to keep control of and thus enslave and plunder the industry and trade of the great body of the northern people themselves. Short, the industrial and commercial slavery of the great body of the people north and south black and white, and is the price that these lenders of blood money demand and insist upon and are determined to secure in return for the money lent for the war. This program, having been fully arranged and systematized, they put their sword into the hands of the chief murderer of the war and charge him to carry their scheme into effect. And now he, speaking as their organ, says, let us have peace. The meaning of this is, submit quietly to all the robbery and slavery we have arranged for you, and you can have peace. But in case you resist, the same lenders of blood money who furnish the means to subdue the South will furnish the means to again subdue you. These are the terms on which alone this government, or with few exceptions any other, ever gives peace to its people. The whole affair on the part of those who furnish the money has been, and now is, a deliberate scheme of robbery and murder. 
Not merely to monopolize the markets of the South, but also to monopolize the currency, and thus control the industry and trade, and thus plunder and enslave the laborers of both North and South. And Congress, and the President, are today the merest tools for their purposes. They are obliged to be, for they show that their own power as rulers, so-called, is at an end the moment their credit with the blood money loanmongers fails. They are like a bankrupt in the hands of an extortioner. They dare not say nay to any demand made upon them. And to hide at once, if possible, both their servility and their crimes, they attempt to divert public attention by crying out that they have abolished slavery, that they have saved the country, that they have preserved our glorious union, and that is, and now paying the national debt, as they call it, as if the people themselves, all of them who ought to be taxed for his payment, had really and voluntarily joined in contracting it. They are simply maintaining the national honor. By maintaining the national honor, they mean simply that they themselves, open robbers and murderers, assume to be the nation, and will keep faith with those who lend them the money necessary to enable them to crush the great body of the people under their feet, and will faithfully appropriate from the proceeds of their future robberies and murders enough to pay all their loans, principal, and interest. The pretense that the abolition of slavery was either a motive or justification for the war is a fraud of the same character with that of maintaining the national honor. Who but such usurpers, robbers, and murderers as they ever established slavery? Or what government, except one resting upon the sword like the one we have now, was ever capable of maintaining slavery? And why do these men abolish slavery? Not from any love of liberty in general, not as an act of justice to the black man himself, but only as a war measure, and because they wanted his assistance and that of his friends in carrying on the war they had undertaken for maintaining and intensifying that political, commercial, and industrial slavery to which they have subjected the great body of the people, both white and black. And yet these impostors now cry out that they have abolished the child slavery of the black man, although that was not the motive of the war, as if they thought that they could thereby conceal, atone for, or justify that other slavery which they were fighting to perpetuate, and to render more rigorous and inexorable than it had ever been before. There was no difference of principle, but only of degree, between the slavery they boast they've abolished and the slavery they were fighting to preserve. For all restraints upon men's liberty, not necessary for the simple maintenance of justice, are of the nature of slavery, and differ from each other only in degree. If their object had really been to abolish slavery or maintain liberty or justice generally, they had only to say, All, whether white or black, who want the protection of this government shall have it, and all who do not want it will be left in peace, so long as they leave us in peace. Had they said this, slavery would necessarily have been abolished at once. The war would have been saved, and a thousand times noble union than we have ever had would have been the result. It would have been a voluntary union of free men, such a union as will one day exist among all men, the world over, if the several nations, so-called, shall ever get rid of the usurpers, robbers, and murderers called governments that now plunder, enslave, and destroy them. Still another of the frauds of these men is that they are now establishing, and that the war was designed to establish, a government of consent. The only idea that they have ever manifested as to what is a government of consent is this, that is one to which everybody must consent or be shot. This idea was the dominant one on which the war was carried on, and it is the dominant one now that we have got what is called peace. Their pretenses that they have saved the country and preserved our glorious union are frauds like all the rest of their pretenses. By them, they mean simply that they have subjugated and maintained their power over an unwilling people. This they call saving a country, as if an enslaved and subjugated people, or as if any people kept in subjection by the sword, as it is intended that all of us shall be hereafter, could be said to have any country. This, too, they call preserving our glorious union, as if there could be said to be any union, glorious or inglorious, that was not voluntary. Or as if there could be said to be any union between masters and slaves, between those who conquer and those who are subjugated. 
All these cries of having abolished slavery, of having saved the country, of having preserved the Union, of establishing a government of consent, and of maintaining the national honor, are all gross, shameless, transparent cheats, so transparent that they ought to deceive no one when uttered as justifications for the war, or for the government that has succeeded the war, or for now compelling the people to pay for the cost of the war, or for compelling anybody to support a government that he does not want. The lesson taught by all these facts is this. As long as mankind continue to pay national debts, so-called, that is, so long as they are dupes and cowards as to pay for being cheated, plundered, enslaved, and murdered, so long there will be enough to lend the money for these purposes. And with that money, a plenty of tools, called soldiers, can be hired to keep them in subjection. But when they refuse any longer to pay for thus being cheated, plundered, enslaved, and murdered, they will cease to have cheats and usurpers and robbers and murderers and blood money loanmongers for masters. By Sanders Spooner's No Treason, the Constitution of No Authority. Appendix. Inasmuch as the Constitution was never signed nor agreed to by anybody as a contract, and therefore never bound to anybody, and is now binding upon nobody, and is, moreover, such an one as no people can ever hereafter be expected to consent to, except as they may be forced to do so at the point of the bayonet, it is perhaps of no importance what its true legal meaning as a contract is. Nevertheless, the writer thinks it proper to say that, in his opinion, the Constitution is no such instrument as it has generally been assumed to be, but that by false interpretations and naked usurpations, the government has been made in practice a very widely and almost wholly different thing from what the Constitution itself purports to authorize. He has heretofore written much, and could write much more, to prove that such is the truth. But whether the Constitution really be one thing or another, this much is certain, that it has either authorized such a government as we have had, or it has been powerless to prevent it. In either case, it is unfit to exist. I hope you enjoyed this reading of Lysander Spooner's No Trees in the Constitution of No Authority by me, Mark Stevens, the author of Adventures in Legal Land, where black is white and white is black and other shocking discoveries from America's courtrooms. Make sure to visit adventuresinlegalland.com today. Talk show host Terry Anderson, known from Washington, D.C. to Los Angeles for articulating the popular rage, sat down with Californians for Population Stabilization to discuss the impact illegal immigration has had on black Americans. Anderson, who grew up in south-central Los Angeles and lives there still today, says that blacks in particular have suffered at job sites and in classrooms as a result of explosive illegal immigration. As he likes to say, you if you ain't mad, you ain't paying attention. The new threat in this new millennium is politicians, mostly Democrats, but some of these rotten bastards happen to be Republicans also, but mostly Democrats, who are willing to not only look the other way, but are taking a proactive stance in making sure that the laws are not enforced under any circumstances. One of the most vile, heinous, anti-American representations of the new lawlessness is Speaker of the House, Representative Nancy Pelosi. She is two accidents away from being the President of the United States, and recently she said that the enforcement of our current immigration laws are, quote, un-American, unquote. Unbelievable. Uh, I lived in South Central L.A. my whole life. Uh, I saw the deterioration due to the illegal alien invasion. And one day I started listening to talk radio, and it happened to be George Putnam, who we all know. And uh, I kind of thought I was the only person involved in this. Well, not involved. I was the only person who felt this way. Thought I was by myself, and I heard people call his show just as angry as I was. And I got more involved in talk radio. I, I looked around the neighborhood. I saw the, the, the denseness. Uh, 
10, 20 people living in a two-bedroom house, four and five cars at each house, uh, corn growing in the front yard, chickens, goats in yards. This is all the stuff we never had when I was growing up there in the 50s and 60s, and all of a sudden we had it. I knew something was wrong. And then I got kind of... Uh, aware of things when I saw the amnesty of 1986. I said, I was a very non-political guy, but even as non-political as I was, I said, this ain't going to work, because if they do this, more will come. And that's what happened. Very slow in the 50s, almost non-existent. Uh, in the 60s, it began to change, basically, from a white culture to a black culture. And then all of a sudden, in the late 70s, early 80s, it started to change to an, what I thought at that time was an immigrant culture. I later found out it was illegal aliens. And then it became very fast-paced. From, I would say, 85 until the present, present, it has just been unbelievably fast. Well, right now, if you're black in South Central LA, you can't get work. I'm not, there are people working. But if you go to McDonald's, you're a 15, 16-year-old kid, you go to McDonald's for an after-school job, weekend job, summer job, they want you to be bilingual. Bilingual to flip a hamburger, okay? Are there some black kids working in South Central in McDonald's and Jack in the Box? Yes, there are, but the majority are not. You will go into these places now. There used to be all black kids working there, are now all Hispanics with the one token black kid in there. Uh, construction work, non existent for blacks, non existent. I remember when they built the Magic Johnson Theater, uh, owned by Sony and Magic Johnson. Uh, it was an all white crew building this movie theater in the Crenshaw Mall. Black construction workers got very angry, picketed, went there and said, we want at least 50% of these jobs, which was correct. And they got 50% of the jobs. Now, you've got all these black construction workers out of jobs with no work, and every construction site now is all Hispanic, mostly illegal alien, and no black politician is saying a word. Even the janitors are becoming non-existent blacks. The only place that I've seen black folks still have a strong foothold, and that's slipping away, school janitors, LA Unified, okay, and bus drivers, LA Unified bus drivers, that Unified School District. That's the only place I still see a lot of blacks working. And the, the ticket agency to write your parking tickets are still predominantly black. Every other aspect of, of, of labor in South Central LA is now Hispanic. Well, you know, when it was whitey, you want half of his. But when it's another, and I hate this word, but I'll use it because you asked me. When it's another minority, unquote, then it's okay. As long as the minority's getting to work, black folks say, well, it's okay. And I say black folks, I mean black leaders. The black rank and file, you talk to them in the grocery store, you go to Pep Boys and talk to them, you go to the bank and talk to them, they will tell you they're fed up with this invasion. But the leaders will not let the public know that. There's two reasons why the, the, the black construction workers won't pick it. Number one, it's futile now, okay? They just know there's just no way they're going to get a job anyway. The other reason is the, 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 the numbers have been so decimated. We've been diluted now. A lot of blacks have moved out of that area. They've moved out to Lancaster, uh, uh, Palmdale, Moreno Valley. They've also moved back down south where the, where the parents got a plot of land or something, you know, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama. They've moved down there. So the numbers are down now, so they don't have any strength. The other thing is the third reason. The third reason is because of stigma. They're afraid of being labeled 
a racist. They, they are scared to death of that word. And they figure if they speak up, they're going to be labeled. Whenever you hear a black person speak up on this invasion issue, they'll always do a disclaimer first. I, I, I'm not against anybody. I like everybody. I love everybody. But it's always that way. They always do the disclaimer first, and then they say what's on their mind. I was at a, an event that, that Bernard Parks was there at the time. He was a what well, he's city councilman now. He's city councilman then. Yeah. He, he's in the 8th District, okay, which is very near where I live. There are construction projects in the same block where his office is that are all Hispanic, and he doesn't say one word about it. He told us at the meeting that night over in West L.A. that he, he, he was very adamant that 90% of construction workers in the city, not county, city of Los Angeles, were white. And everybody in this meeting asked him, what are you smoking? Yeah. Because, you know, they wanted some. Where, where is this at? Because, number one, there are zero white construction workers in L.A., and it just doesn't happen. Secondly, the, 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 to even say that about the county would have been ridiculous, but the city is just really, really stupid. And he actually said that that night, and everybody just laughed out loud. He's, he's an idiot. He really is. I have a theory, okay, and I believe it's correct, and I've done a lot of study on this. I've been to Washington, D.C., talked to all of them. It started out as get whitey, okay? started out as get whitey. We're going to bring in these other, here's this word again, it keeps popping up. We're going to bring in this other group of minorities who are going to dilute whitey's power, okay? They're going to dilute Whitey's power. And then as the group started coming in, it became a tide that couldn't be reversed. So then it became, well, let's be nice to them, and maybe they'll vote for us. Well, they did in some cases, until they got one of their own to, to run for office. And I say one of their own. I'm not knocking all Hispanic Americans, because I love Hispanic Americans. I'm saying that a lot of Hispanic Americans are race-based, just as Maxine Water, Waters and Diane Watson and Jackson Lee and the rest are race-based. They believe in black only. Well, these Hispanic leaders believe in the same thing, and they side with illegal aliens. Our problem being black, we don't have any illegal aliens to side with that's going to give us power. But the Hispanics do. And then it became with the Black Caucus, well, wow, look what's happening. But if we speak up now, we'll sound like the white Republicans, so we better not. So it went from get whitey to maybe they'll vote for us to, wow, the water's boiling. Jamil Shaw is a very tragic case. We've got other cases, uh, Highland Park, where three or four blacks were killed just for being black. Uh, Canoga Park, where the LAPD gave a vocal warning to black folks, do not go to Canoga Park because your life could be in danger. Harbor City, man was walking his daughter to the grocery store one evening, a Mexican guy shot him in the back because he was black. The, the young girl, 204th Street, was killed because she was black. My point is this, there are sections of Los Angeles where blacks cannot go. If a black person goes to East L.A. and tries to buy a house, they will kill him. They will burn him out. It is, it's happened. But there's Hispanics living in all the previous black projects, the Jordan Downs, Nickerson Gardens, Imperial Courts, Pueblo del Rio, all of these projects, housing projects, that were once 100% black now are 50-50, and no Hispanic has been attacked because he was Hispanic. My point is there's a place where we can't go, but there's no place they can't go. What do you attribute the uh, reluctance of the Latino leadership in the city of Los Angeles up to, including Mayor Villarosa, to not speak more candidly and more aggressively about this issue? Very simple. They don't have to. Why would they speak up? They're winning. Their numbers are taking over. 
they're, they're going to be the 80% Los Angeles someday. Uh, they're taking over. Why would they speak up on our behalf? There's no reason to. They don't need us anymore. Villaraigosa can get elected without us now. I, I go out into the community. Wherever I'm at, I, I ask questions. I don't tell them who I am. And that's the thing about being on radio. People don't really know what you look like. But I go out into the black community, and I talk all the time to people. And I, you know, I may be in line somewhere. I say, man, what do you think about so-and-so and so-and-so? Man, they'll turn around and say, man, I thought I was the only one. They all say the very same thing. We're in bad shape in this city. This used to be a uh, multicultural city. It no longer is. There's no diversity in Los Angeles City anymore. And those same black people will tell you that they've got a relative who can't get a job. They've got a neighbor who plays loud mariachi music. They've got a neighbor who grows corn in his front yard. They'll tell you about their child in school who's in bilingual education and not learning a damn thing. They, they'll tell you all of this, every one of them. But if you ask them to stand up and come to a rally, they won't do it because they're afraid. I go to these churches. These churches have uh, town hall meetings. And I've been to a lot of these town hall meetings. Every time they have them, they'll bring in Tony Mohammed and uh, Earl Ofari Hutchinson and some of these other, quote, black leaders, unquote, self-appointed black leaders. They'll bring them in, and they are the only ones who take the pro-illegal alien position. And sometimes the minister of the church will. You know, that's about the money in the plate. But the black constituency that comes to these meetings is always 95 to 99 percent in favor of deportation of every one of them. And it's not just the black kids. No, no. The, Ameri the American Hispanics who don't speak Spanish, oh, they're, they're in trouble too. You know, they, they, com they complain. They call this radio show. They come in here and, and, and talk to me. I get emails from them all the time. The, the problem with the education system is a few years ago, we were closing schools in this, in this city because of under-enrollment, which is not necessarily a bad thing. Population had slowed down. They were combining schools, and every once in a while they would close one. We just built... 165 new schools, 165 new schools. They were after 165,000 classroom seats, okay? All for what? It wasn't for the American kids. Americans aren't having a lot more kids. These were for an influx of people new to this country who happened to be Hispanic, happened not to speak any English, and happened to be in the country illegally. That's what happened. Or the, the, the illegal aliens came here and had babies here. My great-grandfather. My great-grandfather was a slave in the state of Louisiana. Obviously, I never met him. But the ancestry handed down to me by those who came before me, my aunts and uncles and my father, and they all told me the stories of what it was like because it was passed on to them. And one of the greatest moments in our history was the day we were emancipated. Uh, we were emancipated with the Civil War, but we still had to have, a, uh, we had to have something passed that said officially we were no longer property, we were now citizens, and anything born to us was citizens. That was written for my ancestors, okay. Having said that, we've got a new misinterpretation of it that everybody from the world has used to come here and have babies and make them American citizens. It is wrong, it is a misinterpretation, and it angers me personally because it was written for my ancestors and now it's being misused and therefore used against me. I'm suffering from it now because of the influx of so many people and their, and their progeny that they have once they get here. I'm suffering from that. My kids and my grandkids are going to suffer because they took an amendment meant for us and turned it around against us. That's outrageous. The media basically at large won't touch this issue as, as in any form. And when they do, it's always pro-illegal alien. When they do touch it, as far as consequences to other people, 
It's alleged that this is hurting black folks. It's alleged that this did this. It's alleged that they're costing us tax dollars. It's never a fact that it's happened, even though they know it's a fact. The only avenue of media uh, where we have a fair shake is talk radio, conservative talk radio. And even that sucks sometimes. Hannity, one of the most powerful people in this country, who could really do us a lot of good on this issue, and a guy that I would like to have a beer with. I think he's a nice guy. But Hannity sucks on this issue. All he talks about is the border, the border, the border, the border. There's more to the border. When's he going to do our show on what's happening to these communities? These kids that are getting murdered by illegal aliens. The fact that we can't get jobs. The fact that teenagers have to speak Spanish to flip a hamburger. Where's the Hannity show on that? Where's even a segment on that on his radio, on his television program? You won't find it. O'Reilly. Here's another powerful guy who, sta- who tells us we're going to have to amnesty this 20, 25 million people. What is that? That These are lawbreakers and you're saying, well, we have to amnesty them. We can't round them all up. We don't have to round them up. Make enough, enough effort to enforce the laws on the books. Make it where they can't educate, they can't medicate, they can't incarcerate. Make it where they can't buy a house, they can't open a business, they can't rent an apartment. And I guarantee you, they'll go home. What about the, 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 the janitors in West L.A., Century City, Beverly Hills, who were making black janitors, some, some white, who were making $12 an hour 15 years ago? That was great money. That was great money. All of a sudden, the, the, the owners, the building owners got together in collusion, broke the union, hired Hispanic illegal aliens from Mexico and El Salvador. They came in. They said, we, "We're going to. You guys, minimum wage was five and a quarter, I believe." They says, uh, "We'll give you five and a quarter fine." They went and told the black and white employees, "We'll give you five and a quarter. You can keep your job." Well, if a guy's making twelve dollars an hour, he's got he's got insurance payments, house note, kids, car payment, all set up around twelve bucks. Five dollars an hour will kill him. He can't, he can't survive, so they lost their jobs. So guess what happened? The illegal aliens came in, got all the jobs, and then went on strike. And then messy Jesse Jackson marched downtown L.A. holding a broom in his hand, wow. talking about justice for janitors. I mean, unbelievable. He, he, he's supposed to be Mr. Black. He's supposed to be, I'm so for the black community. These guys just put his people out of work, Americans, out of work, and he marches with a mop in his hand talking about justice for janitors. I think it's going to get worse, but I think one thing that might save us, and I hate to use this as a savior, is this economic situation. Uh, I think that's going to slow things down. I think amnesty will be a hard sell now with so many people out of work. It was a stupid idea. In good times, in bad times, it's absolutely outrageous. But in Los Angeles itself, uh, I don't think we're done, but I think unless we get some more American thinking back into this, this city, and, and, and less left-wing, liberal, uh, idiotic ideologies that are taking place where you give everything away to anybody who wants it, whether they're legal or illegal. I think we're, we're sunk pretty much for quite a while. As we progressed and the races came together, we started to drift off into this black pride, black awareness thing, which I never really got, but I saw it and liked it and didn't like it. It brought us together in one way, but it also kept us from being full Americans. But we never ever talked about taking over a country. We never talked about, we had no Aslan. We never talked about reclaiming a part of America for our race or for some previous country we came from or continent. We never flew a foreign flag. 
We never did any of that. And that's what angers me now. These, these young Hispanic kids now, they're, they, if you ask them, kids are the second and third generation uh, uh, Californians, Americans, will tell you they're Mexican. I'm Mexican. I hear them say it all the time. Wasn't your mother born? Yeah. Wasn't your mother and father's mother born? Yeah. But I'm Mexican. I'm not American. I'm Mexican. But when you've got a country, and I'm not against immigration. I, I, I want to cut it way back. But I think we need some fresh blood every once in a while. But when you have this many people coming this fast illegally, guess what? They don't have to. They don't have to assimilate. They can keep their own 100% culture. Same culture they ran away from, they can drag here. Terry Anderson's show can be heard every Sunday night in Los Angeles on KRLA 870 AM from 9 to 10 p.m. Other stations carrying his show can be found at theterryandersonshow.com. For more information on how you can help, go to www.capsweb.org. Did you hear about the Fed? No. What about the Fed? They announced another round of the quantitative easing. What does that mean? It means they are going to make large asset purchases via Pomo. What does that mean? It means they are going to expand their balance sheet and buy treasuries. What does that mean? It means they are going to print a ton of money. So why do they call it the quantitative easing? Why don't they just call it the printing money? Because the printing money is the last refuge of failed economic empires and banana republics, and the Fed doesn't want to admit this is their only idea. So why do they want to print the money? Because they say we have the deflation, and the deflation is very bad. What is the deflation? The deflation is when prices of the things we buy go down. Isn't that good? Doesn't it mean the people can buy more of the stuff? Yes, but the Fed said this is bad, especially during the recession. So they think that during the recession, when the people have less money to buy the stuff, it is bad that the prices go down? Yes, the Fed would rather have the inflation. So why does the Fed think we have the deflation? Because the CPI said so. But aren't the food prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the gas prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the health care costs higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't tuition prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the taxes higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the subway fares higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the stock prices higher than a year ago? Yes. Aren't the bond prices higher than a year ago? Yes. So what is deflating right now? The only thing deflating that I can see is the Fed's credibility. Did they have a lot of credibility to start with? No. Why not? Because the Fed has been wrong about every major economic development in the past 20 years. You mean they didn't see the Internet stock bubble? No. In fact, they helped fuel the Internet stock bubble. And they didn't see the housing bubble? No, in fact, they helped cause the housing bubble. And they didn't see the subprime crisis? No, in fact, they told us subprime problems were contained right before the shit hit the fan and the Lehman went bankrupt. So has the Fed ever been right about anything? Let me see if I can think of anything. Nope, nothing. Who runs the Fed? The Fed is run by the Ben Bernanke. Does the Ben Bernanke have a lot of business experience? No, the Ben Bernanke has no business experience. Does the Ben Bernanke have a lot of policy experience? No, the Ben Bernanke has no policy experience. Has the Ben Bernanke ever run in an election? No, the Ben Bernanke has never run in an election. So what qualifies him to run the Fed? I don't know, maybe the fact that he has a nice beard. But my plumber also has a nice beard, and I would not trust him to play God with the economy. 
No, although when you call the plumber to fix something that is broken, they usually fix it, not break it more. This is true, the plumber is clearly smarter than the Ben Bernanke. Well, that is why he became a plumber, and not an economist. How does the Fed execute the quantitative easing? They print the money, and then they buy the treasury bonds. Do they buy the treasury bonds from the treasury department? No, they buy the treasury bonds from the Goldman Sachs. You must be shitting me. No. So let me get this straight. If I want to buy the treasury bonds with my money, I can buy them directly from the treasury. Yes. And if you want to buy the treasury bonds with your money, you can buy them from the treasury. Right. But if the Ben Bernanke wants to buy the treasury bonds using the American people's money, he does not buy them from the treasury, he buys them from the Goldman Sachs? Exactly. And does the Goldman Sachs give them a good price? Of course not, they are the Goldman Sachs, they make their living ripping off the American people. But how is the Goldman Sachs able to do this? The Fed announces what it is going to buy, and when it is going to buy, before it does the trade. So the Goldman Sachs can front run the Fed, and give them the worst possible price on the Treasury bonds? Yes, exactly. And the Fed is okay with this blatant theft from the American people? Of course, otherwise, the Fed would just buy the Treasury bonds directly from the Treasury Department. Who inside the Fed is responsible for the buying of the Treasury bonds? The buying of the Treasury bonds is conducted by the New York branch of the Federal Reserve. And who is in charge of the New York branch? The head of the New York branch is the William Dudley. And what did the William Dudley do before running the New York Fed? Before running the New York Fed, the William Dudley was a partner at the Goldman Sachs. So the guy in charge of the American people's money when dealing with the Goldman Sachs used to be a partner at the Goldman Sachs? Yes. And nobody has a problem with this? Apparently not. Is this an episode of the Twilight Zone? I don't think so. Are you sure? Pretty sure. So what you are telling me is that the Fed thinks prices are going down when in fact they are going up? Yeah. And they think during the recession, with the high unemployment, it is better if the thing people need to buy cost more money. Correct. According to the Ben Bernanke, the inflation will create the jobs and improve the housing market. Has this ever been tried before? Yes, just last year the Fed tried the quantitative easing with $2 trillion. Did that create the jobs? No. Did it help the housing market? Not at all. Did it help anybody at all? Yes, it helped the Goldman Sachs. How much of the money are they printing now? $600 billion. So even though the first $2 trillion did not create the jobs or improve the housing market, the Fed decided to do another $600 billion anyway? Yes. Who put the Ben Bernanke in charge? The Ben Bernanke was first appointed by the President Bush, then he was reappointed by the President Obama. But wasn't the President Obama supposed to bring the change? Yes. How is putting in charge the same fool who has been wrong about everything, the change? Well, under the President Bush, the Ben Bernanke only blew up the American economy. Under the President Obama, he is working on blowing up the entire global economy. That does not sound like the change we can believe in. Definitely not. Who else supports the Ben Bernanke? Most economists around the world think the quantitative easing is very dangerous. Does anyone think it is a good idea? Yes, the people at the Goldman Sachs. Is this some kind of nightmare? No, it is very real. I want to bang my head against the wall. You should not do that. Why not? Because the health care is too expensive. But didn't the President Obama fix that? No, but that is the subject of a whole other video. Goodbye.
prices have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Online. 
you just have to be insane, but what do I know? And, of course, people like it, and, of course, the mobile banking these days, they also like that. Under Wells Fargo, its chief rival, Bank of America and J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, have been a lot more aggressive in shutting branches in recent years, but uh, um, they, Wells Fargo says it hasn't been uh, the decision to close these banks uh, is not because of the bank's fake account scandal. Uh, so they are basing it on online sales, which I would have to agree to that. That, that scandal didn't hurt Wells Fargo. I mean, cut me a break. Um, in 2018, Wells Fargo plans to shut down slightly more than 200 branches. Uh, they want to save about $2 billion bucks a year. So... Kind of narrow-minded of them, isn't it? Yeah, how dare they want to save when they're not even paying? Are they going to raise their rates, uh, their interest rates to people with savings accounts? No, they'll raise their fees. (laughs) That's that's going to go up, our fees. Absolutely. And it's evidence that the public is becoming increasingly digitized in its banking. Mm -hmm. So they don't need to go to a bank anymore. They can just dial it up like... uh, I don't know. Anything else on the Internet? Yep. Um, today, the, the producer price index gained 0.3% in December, matching the median projection of economists. Uh, of course, there was a 0.4% advance the prior month. Uh, this report was produced by the Labor Department. That was released today. The measure was up 1.6% from a year earlier, and this actually is the most since September of 2014. And this is a sign that the broader measures of inflation, um, you know, is going to continue to to rise, and it's approaching the goal of the Federal Reserve Um you know, if you want to call it their, you know, what they perceive they recommend as a, a prescription they for the, good economic right, health. Yeah, the right level of inflation that this country has. And if anybody believes that we're really holding on to a lesser than 2% inflation rate, well, anyway, uh, let's see. Energy prices rose 2.6% from the prior month. Gasoline prices jumped 7.8%, accounting for about half of what the December rise in goods was. Foods did show a little bit of a a 0.7% increase, and that is the most since last January. So you're even beginning to see a little more uh, food inflation since last uh, January. Wholesale prices, excluding food and energy, rose 0.2%, and the previous month was 0.4%. And those costs were up 1.6% since December of 2015. Services inflation moderated. Um, trade services, producer costs rose 0.1%. That's if you exclude food and energy. Uh, let's see what else is interesting they have. The core measure is increased by 1.7%. So, um, you know, hey, inflation is coming, folks. And, you know, everybody talks about the the trillions of dollars that are sitting on the sideline in cash. What do you think is going to happen when that cash begins to come into these (laughs) markets? It's like, baby, we're going to see inflation like we've never seen before. So Mm -hmm. hang on. But... um, I've got an article on the U.S. economy couple of articles, actually, that don't entirely agree. What they're interesting from that perspective, is the economy doing well? Is it doing badly? What's going on here? There's one from Ms. Shedlock. He says, Christmas fizzles, retail sales except autos, gas fall flat. That's the headline. 
According to the Census Department Advanced Monthly Sales for Retail and Food Services report, there was a disastrous Christmas for department stores, sporting goods, electronics, appliances. There was an unexpected uh, it was expected that we would have a strong Christmas. Economists were giddy across the board, but other than autos and gas, retail sales were flat in December. Now, flat's not terrible. We're saying, well, it didn't do much better than we did last year, but flat is not terrible. But nevertheless, it's been presented as, you know, the word disastrous was used. It's not my word. I didn't add the word to the to the report, and I don't think it was a disastrous Christmas season, but it was not you know, a powerfully optimistic Christmas season either. And in short, he said, uh, Christmas hype did not live up to its billing. Retail sales minus autos were two-tenths of a percent down below the lowest economist's estimate. Retail sales minus autos and gas were flat and three-tenths of a percent below the lowest economist's estimate. The economists had been, had been optimistic, uh, didn't work out that way. Amazon, however, had a great Christmas season. So did car dealers, and the, but the box retailers, meaning conventional brick-and-mortar stores, according to Shedlock, they got clobbered. Um, one of the points about this is there are stores with semi-famous names that you and I recognize and may have seen for years that are going to at least be closing branches and maybe closing out entirely before the next Christmas sale you know, 10, 11 months from now, we'll watch and see, but uh, this does not bode well for brick-and-mortar stores. They're not all going to die, but there's going to be a problem. Here's a second article from Bloomberg, and although Christmas was a little shaky, Bloomberg says U.S. small business optimism index surges by most since 1980. Optimism among America's small businesses soared in uh, December by the most since 1980, as, ex as expectations about the economy's prospects improved dramatically in the aftermath of the presidential election. The National Federation of Independent Businesses Index, uh, Businesses Index jumped 7.4% last month from 98.4 to 105.8, the highest since the end of 2004. Um, more companies also said they plan to increase investment and keep hiring, which reflects optimism surrounding President-elect Donald Trump's plans of spurring the economy through deregulation, tax reform, and infrastructure spending. However, well, let me want one more point. We haven't seen numbers like this in a long time. Juanita Duggan, president and chief executive of the NFIB, said in a statement, small business is ready for a breakout. And that can only mean very good things for the U.S. economy. For the U.S. economy, business owners are feeling better about taking risks and making investments. However, here's a third article. This is from Gains and Pain, Gains, Pains, and Capital, and the headline is confirmed: The U.S. is officially in a recession. Right. And they say the U.S. is in a, is is in, is officially in a recession. This won't show up in the official data because the official data is a fiction. You won't hear it from the mainstream media, and you won't hear it from the government. But they claim we're already in a recession, and they say GDP numbers might as well be in Harry in a might might as well be in a Harry Potter novel. Uh, they're inaccurate and ridiculous. But if you want to see what's really happening in the real economy. You need to look at tax receipts. 
And I think that's a very good observation. I think that's a nice insight. If you want to find out if the economy is going up, check to see how much money is the government taking in in revenue. And if they're taking in more than they did last year, then the economy is improving and it's not a recession. If they're taking in less than they took in last year, and the actual and the and the 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 revenue rate is declining as a percentage of last year's uh, gross revenue, that's evidence that we're in a recession. I point out that current tax recess uh, tax changes in current changes in tax receipts as compared to the previous year have only gone negative four times in the past 35 years. That'd be 1982, 2001, 2008, and now 2016. In each of the previous three instances, 1982, 2001, 2008, there were where tax revenues actually went negative as compared if they fell below what they had been the previous year. We also experienced recessions. The implication is that the current decline in tax revenue is solid evidence that we are already in another recession, even if economists and mainstream media have gone, have so far failed to report that recession. Um, according to gains, pains, and, and capital, we only see these negative years when we are in a tax revenue years, when we are in a recession. And they say the investors who believe that the GDP growth of 5% is right around the corner are marching like lambs to the slaughter. What do you think, Melody? Are the investors headed like lambs to the slaughter, or is this excessively pessimistic? Well, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I do have been heading there for a long time. I mean, we've never really come out any of our recessions since. I agree. You know, since the seventy or eighties it's just been disguised by excessive debt, new programs that are created that funnel money into certain areas and, and voila. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but the true recession is still there. My only question about his theory and when you see a, a change in the tax revenue is, you know, what happens when Trump does tax cuts, you're going to see a reduction yeah, in tax revenue. So you can't, how does that support when you see a decline in tax revenue? And I know, I don't know the last time that, I don't know if we've had it in 2017, but I know 20, not 2017, but 2016, but I know for a few years or quarters, there were record tax revenues coming in. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that has recently Well, there's a difference reversed. between the, the tax rate can go down. I said tax And this revenue. happened before when they, yeah. they reduced the tax, the, the income tax rate, that the, actually, yeah. the revenue actually increases because the economy is stimulated and we have more business going on. And even though the rate is lower, the actual total revenue is higher. But in, yeah. according, pardon me? Well, if they don't get the revenue, they have to get the revenue somewhere. See, I believe I when they have tax cuts, yeah, but it could happen. They're just going to change. They're just going to change it to get it someplace else. They need the money. Watch and see. It's just an interesting argument that the thing to watch. If you want to find out what's happening to the economy, what's happening to tax revenues, they're arguing it's one of the strongest and and least manipulable, if there is such a word, uh, indices for. Economics, right? What's the tax revenue doing? Going up, going down. Going up, we're not in a recession. Going down, we are. Well, I mean, I think, too, it's probably one of the truest 
um, mm-hmm. areas and numbers that are produced. But um, you know, I just I have to disagree a little bit with this theory. But we'll watch and see. We'll watch and see. It's not prophecy. It's just somebody's opinion. That's all it is. But we'll, I thought it was a good insight. Mm-hmm. I would pay attention to. Here's another small item. Uh, this is. This is another one where you shake your head and roll your eyes, and my God, I never thought I would live to see anything like this. Here's something from Technocracy News, and the headline is, Human Rights for Robots as Electronic Persons. European technocrats have determined that advanced robots must be classed as electronic persons so they can be regulated like everyone and like everything in society. A European Parliament committee has voted in favor of a draft report that proposes granting legal status to robots, categorizing them as electronic persons. The draft report proposes that the most sophisticated autonomous robots could be established as having the status of electronic persons with specific rights and obligations including that of making good any damage they may cause. In other words, if you get hit by a robot, you can sue the robot. Right? They have have right to hit you in certain circumstances, perhaps. I don't know. That's not true. But they have some rights, but they also have liabilities, and we're going to have electronic persons. This was authored by Luxembourg MEP um, uh, Lady Delvo. The report proposes definitions and outlines rules that govern how robots interact with humans. Now that humankind stands on the threshold of an era uh, that it claims will see artificial intelligence unleash a new industrial revolution. Artificial intelligence developers will have to ensure that their creations follow a set of rules that prohibit them from harming a human or allowing a human to come to harm through their inaction. Artificial intelligence can protect their own existence under the rules, but if this if this does not harm any humans, an opt-out mechanism or kill switch is also proposed in the report, ensuring that any rogue robots can be turned off easily, provided the designer hasn't let their artificial intelligence outsmart them. I'm, these people are serious. Rogue robots. You understand? This is like a Flash Gordon film out of the 1940s. We've got a rogue robots running around here, and we're preparing for that. One researcher claimed robots will not totally replace humans in the workplace. Good news, Melody. We're not going to be completely replaced by robots. <laughs> Instead, there will be a cooperation between robots and humans. So, and the and the author, this is me, Miss Devereaux, She says, I imagine that everyone can learn to work together with robots. The robots are. Can't we all melody. get along? Yeah, can't, can't we, we all, all just get, get along? along? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> My God. I mean, well, this is happening. This isn't some. This this is not fake news. I, this is happening right now. It's like, good lord, I I don't know what to make of it, Melody. Like I say, just hang on tight, like riding a roller coaster. Just say wee, and uh, you know, see what's going to happen here. But it, it, these are interesting and extraordinary times where people are preparing to give robots rights. They're talking about this right now. And not just some science fiction writer, the people in the European Parliament. 
This is uh, bizarre. It really is bizarre. And you know what's sad is you have the youth um, that are just so enthralled with technology. And, you know, they just think it's great. They they want to be part of technology. You know, they want to be, be they want to become. And it, 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 it's, they've been entrenched in all these video games for how long. I just. Uh, it's and I, it's just not because we're older, you know. It's just not that generation. Well, I hope it's not. I hope it's, it's not, not just that because we're older. Yeah. If it is, then maybe we'll be the first ones to go when the robots rule. Let's take a break for a couple commercials. Melody and I will be right back. Please stay tuned to Financial Survival. and you are really concerned about your legal jeopardy and the resulting media coverage, was deadly force justified? In your town, the politics of self-defense is not favorable, but at least you're alive and your family is protected. Fortunately, you have Self-Defense Fund, a comprehensive litigation membership backing you on appeals, legal expenses, court costs, and more, up to $1 million per incident and unlimited attorney costs per member. Discover SelfDefenseFund.com for yourself. Any weapon, any state, any time. Since the beginning of the United States, kings have sought it, nations have fought for it. It has been traded, borrowed, purchased, and stolen. There is a reason for it. To secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, invest with the security of gold and silver. Call Discount Gold and Silver Trading at 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Listen to Financial Survival with your host, Melody Cedarstrom, on American Voice Radio Network and Shortwave Radio. Visit DiscountGoldAndSilverTrading.net or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. For the very best in gold and silver trading, call toll-free 1-800-375-4188. That's 1-800-375-4188. Call now. American Voice Radio Network is heard on Galaxy 19 at 97 degrees west, transponder 23, frequency 12115, audio PID 2595. AVR is heard on the left side audio channel, and AVR2 is heard on the right side audio channel. Remember, both AVR and AVR2 on Galaxy 19. Same network, double the choices. Cedarstrom on Financial Survival, brought to you by Discount Gold and Silver at 1-800-375-4188. What's next, Melody? I just want to remind listeners, we got some great prices here. We have some, you know, one-ounce silver rounds. We still have a few of those left. I mean, they're at a tremendous price. One-ounce silver eagles. I mean, they're selling for a few pennies over wholesale. So, come on, folks. Give us a call at 1-800-375-4188. 2017 silver eagles will be, we should be receiving them next week so we can get them shipped out. And we've also been running some specials on the quarter-ounce American gold eagles. So, there's a lot to choose from. But you, you know, don't get caught up in, you know, the, you know, that everything is great, fine and dandy. And, uh, you know, we're living in a new, new paradigm here that things have changed. 
Thanks. We'll be cooperating with the robots, Melody. <laughs> we will. It'd be kind of like Doctor Doolittle if I could talk to the robots. Do you have to, do you have to grease them? Well, if you do or not, it may be our job. We may become their man and woman servants. We'll be in charge of dusting them off and cleaning them back behind their back where their arms won't reach and the rest of that sort of thing. We can bathe them and lubricate them and uh, entertain them. We may be like court jesters. Say, oh, look. Maybe. Well, you know, I'm, I don't want to go any further than what I'm about to say. But I've seen, I don't even read the articles, but I see the headlines where they're talking about having sex with these robots. And it's like, are you kidding me? It's just bizarre. But anyway, like I said, I don't want to go any further. Oh, I might blush. Oh, you're spoiling all my fun, Melody, because I could run with that. You know what I, I mean? I know. That's, that's why we're not. That's the sort of thing that's. The- It's grist for my mill. <laughs> well, we're not going there. Baby boomers. The, millen- the millennial children are worse off than you. With a median household income than boomers did at the same stage of life. Despite being better educated, according to a new analysis of the Federal Reserve data by the uh, advocacy group Young Invincibles, the analysis is being released Friday. Today gives concrete details about a troubling generational divide that helps to explain much of the anxiety that defined the 2016 election. Millennials have half the net worth of boomers. Their home ownership rate is lower, while their student debt is drastically higher. Generational gap is the central dilemma for the incoming presidency. Uh, He has pledged to return the prosperity of post-World War II America, and the analysis also hints at the issues of culture and identity that divided many voters, showing the white millennials, who still earn much more than their blacks and Latino peers, have seen their incomes plummet the most relative to the boomers. Um, so, and again, uh, this is a generation, and, and you know, and who's to say that every generation is supposed to be better than what our parents have? I mean, it was the American they dream. That, they fed that idea to us. Well, it was the American dream. It was the original American dream that each generation would live better. That we would could continue to better ourselves, but you do reach a point. When you know, when your politicians crush you, your ability to well, be no, prosperous. How much more? How many more cars can you get in your driveway? How many TVs can you big get in your are, So I mean, there is a point to, and a peak to how much better we can be, and how much. Yeah, but it's not just because it's an average. It's an average. A better life isn't all about how many TVs and cars that you can have. Well, it's about rights and it's about freedoms. Those are the things that we've lost. That's what makes a better life. And yet, instead, we've lost so much. You've been reading again, haven't you, Melody? Haven't we warned you about that? You should be watching TV with the rest of the populace and no, lusting for a new car, a new house, a new vacation, a new whatever. I'm being serious, Al. So, I mean, no. And, and uh, you know, just, but so where do we go from here? I mean, how, they, we can only maintain. Our, our standard of living, but we know the government had wanted us to um, lower our standard of living, and they've succeeded. Yeah. They certainly have done anything reasonable, reasonable to protect our standard of living. They've come up with excuses, and you know, 
One of the things you have to look at, we have been in or near a recession since 2007, 2008. They admitted we had one right up front. They have since said that 2009, the recession was over and the recovery was starting or nearly getting ready to start. They haven't really improved this economy significantly in the past eight years. Now, that's not just a testimonial to how much trouble we have. It's also a testimonial to either how incompetent our financial managers really are. And by financial managers, I mean the government and the Federal Reserve. They're either extraordinarily incompetent or they really don't want a recovery. Either case, we have a problem here where somebody needs to take these people and say, look, you either solve this problem or start looking for a country that doesn't have extradition laws. Something's got to be done. We can't just sit here and languish forever for God. You know, this is the United States of America. We should be able to deal with these problems without going on and on and on, or at least someone should admit what the problem is. And they haven't done any of it. They're not being honest with us about it. They don't give us honest economic numbers. They pump sunshine in our direction, smoke and mirrors and the rest of that sort of thing. And it is presumed that perhaps the lies will get us through this, but I think mostly they're just buying time. And it's just wrong. It's And it's not just a question. You can't just excuse this as incompetence. There's something else happening here. This is being allowed to happen. It's being caused to happen, allowed to happen. I don't know which way it goes, but it's not just incompetence. This goes to people that are betraying this country to the New World Order. No proviso in the Constitution for our government to work on setting up a North American Union that includes Canada and Mexico and the United States. Ultimately, we'll start out, it'll just be commercial in the beginning, but it'll inevitably turn into a political entity. There's no proviso for that. This is treason. And yet we have people that are negotiating, that are, that are implementing these objectives or trying to. And it's clearly contrary to the best interest of the American people. It might be great for major corporations, multinational corporations in the New World Order, but it's terrible for the people of the United States of America. And we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be accepting it. Um, I wanted to say about the, um, about the college educated, the, the proportion of 25 to 29 year olds with a college degree has risen to 35.6% in 2015 from 23.2% in 1990. That really has, you know, they, and it's, you know, the challenges that these, uh, young kids have today, um, there's just nothing there for, it makes you wonder, I mean, they go to college, but what do they major in? <laughs> Can they really get a job off of what they majored in? And most of them can't. You know, they major in some sort of liberal arts or, you know, how to, you know, or some, you know, um, health social program that, uh, you know, in today's world is just uh, isn't enough to uh, get a decent uh, uh, job. No. But the world but, uh, is changing so fast. Yeah, I mean, is. I don't blame, blame the kids for that. You can plot what your education is and what you want to do with your life four years from now. When I was a kid, you could do that. You could basically chart. Sure. If you wanted to be an aeronautical engineer, you go through college four years, get yourself a job as an aeronautical engineer. In theory, you might not work for the same company all your life, but in theory, you could hope and expect to work in the same occupation. Mm -hmm. for all your life. Now, 
I don't see that that's even reasonable. I, what, the most important thing I think any youngster can learn is how to learn, and particularly how to educate themselves. Because you can't keep going back to college every four years for another for another two, three years, however many it takes to up your your uh, curriculum background, the rest of that sort of thing. There has to be a way in this fast-changing society, you have to find a way to educate yourself so you are constantly trying to stay even with the technology. I don't know that anyone can stay ahead of it, for, at least other than just temporarily. Um, at least stay even, right? But constant re-education, 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 and ultimately you have to educate yourself. It's a situation right now where I think the average man to hold his job gets done with eight hours work during the day. He comes home and he should probably be putting at least an hour, maybe two hours a night into some sort of a self-study program that deals with fundamental issues or advances in whatever field he's in. You got to do something. It's not enough just to go to work. You got to continue to educate yourself. And if you can do that, you know, you may be able to hold on to a, a standard of living. But this is so bizarre right now. I don't know. I, I don't envy these kids. I don't envy the millennials or anyone else right now. It is a difficult, difficult time and causes stress, predisposes people to engage in criminal behavior. And. No one is really addressing this right now in a meaningful sense. They're just, well, let's, let's just get what money we can. Belly up to the trough and get as much as you can for yourself and to heck with everyone else. This is contributing to a breakdown that's not, not going to serve anyone well. But couldn't you also say this is another sign that perhaps, you know, one of the outs or relief from this problem would be to have a war? Yeah, I don't know, but I mean, I, you know, some people's in order opinion, to, but I don't think, you know, do you want to go participate in a war? Does anyone want no, to go war? Well, no, that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean that the elite's not going to, no, I know. you know, say, hey, we, you know, we got to, you know, might have to take care of this problem because there's too many of them now that are, you know, that can't find work and so forth, a good quality work. So, I don't know, it's just, uh, I mean, I think we're in one of those times, and, you know, I talked yesterday when I did my 20 minutes, uh, you know, a little bit on the on the hearings uh, on Tillerson and, you know, his, his and, and watching some news and reading some news later on, some of the other comments uh, from some of the other cabinet, and I don't think they're going against Trump at all. I think they're, they're being asked questions and they're answering. And I'll guarantee you that they're the same questions that Mr. Trump asked them. So I don't think it's any big surprise, and I don't think it can be used against them or to, negative and so forth. However, the language is strong, and the language is, no, telling China, no, you're going to do this, you're not going to do that. Well, you know, um, or what? Or China is going to react. So it's kind of interesting to, uh, you know, it's. We, I think we people are going to generate a certain amount of humility before this is all over. Our problem is not with what other countries are doing. In my opinion, our first order of business is straighten out what's going on in Washington, D.C. We straighten out our own problems. We can worry about China some other time. China is not our problem. Our problem it can be a big problem. It is a big problem because they own a lot of our debt. And if we begin to, you know, they, they can always hang that over our heads. And 
So, again, you'd have to say, well, they wouldn't do so something stupid to where they would lose so much money. Well, I guess they'd have to wait to see which, you know, which um, uh, stream of action is going to affect them the most. Oh, they have to account so. for their own populace also. They have more problems than we do. However many problems we have, China's in worse shape. They have no problems on bombing or shooting. There. <laughs> do you remember what Tiananmen Square? Yeah, I remember. Well, nobody actually know, got shot. They, in they, fact, no, but they keep their, you know, so so far, so well, far. But they're sitting on and when a billion get people, tougher, uh, when a billion get, plus people. I don't know what the population. When times get tougher. They will make sure that, uh, that the people will, you know, the tougher the times are, the, the um, you know, the people will most likely accept what's given them. China's, China is a docile kind of country. I mean, it's something that there are some people that can be organized and there are some people that can't be organized. And China is someone who is a population that by and large can be organized. Right, they will put up with a bunch of stuff. You know, in our own Declaration of Independence, it says all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than take action to right themselves. That's not, probably not a uh, exact. It says all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable. I got that much right. Than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. In other words, people, and it's there in our Declaration of Independence. And what they're saying is the founders understood that people would put up with an enormous amount of crap. Right? Oppression, abuse. They'll put up with just incredible amounts before they finally say, all right, you SOBs, here we come. Right? Revolution is a very, nobody wants it. Oh, a handful of people want it, but there's no significance. It really has to, the government has to really be extraordinarily abusive to push people in there. Well, I would say, if I had to guess, I would say that the Chinese are less likely to riot than are the people of the United States of America. That would be a guess. And I'm inclined to think that's probably correct. I think they are a docile people who will put up with an, an enormous amount of abuse, but they kind of have to, just because what are you going to do with so much, such an enormous population? I mean, the only solution to their population problem is they've got to thin their population. How do you do well, that? Well, they don't seem they want to do it. It's like they want to grow it because they've changed their child policy. Well, there's that, but, but even that, uh, they still have more people than they know what to do with. And I've talked about this for the last six months or more, a report that China's thought they would probably have 80% of their workers in one of their most, their, one of their most prominent industrial provinces. They expected 80% to be robots by 2020. Now, how can that make sense? You've got people who are barely, you know, they're running around on wooden wheels in some places. And yet they're going to reduce it. They're going to take away 80% of the jobs? I mean, the whole world is caught in a situation where there are too many of us. Right? And for whatever reasons, the, the distribution of income, the actual amount of income that's being produced is insufficient. The distribution of income is not equitable. And I'm not sitting back arguing from each according to their ability to each according to their need. I'm just saying, look, there's a problem here. 
millions of people are not getting fed. Millions, tens of millions, maybe hundreds of millions aren't being fed. They're going to riot. Um, they're going to resort to violence because it's either that or they can die all alone in a corner without enough to eat. What are they going to do? And they were facing it on a global basis. So we had, I think I have an article on, uh, well, I don't have it right here in front of me right now. Um, no, don't have it right here in front of me. On homelessness, right? Which has become significant in this country, and people talk about homelessness, and they say, oh my gosh, people are homeless. What about the illegal aliens that are coming up there? They're effectively homeless. What's happened to the refugees that are moving into Europe? They're homeless. This is a global problem. This is not just local. This is global. We're going to take a break for some commercials. Melody and I will be right back. Please stay tuned. have increased over 40%. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971, when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3w.thepowerherbs.com. Cedarstrom on financial survival for Friday, best day of the week for us. And uh, Friday the 13th. Friday the 13th. Yeah. And there was a sort of a bizarre coincidence on an airline a flight. Um, the flight bearing the number 666 
<laughs> it was. Uh, <laughs> that's like that's like hotel rooms or hotels where they get rid of the 13th floor. We go from the 12th floor to the 14th. We don't have a 13th floor in the in the hotel. They shouldn't have airplane flights that are number six six six. Well, let me finish. Go ahead. And it was a Finnair flight. Took off from Copenhagen and flew directly to Helsinki. So, do you know what their call letters are? Helsinki. H E L L. Well, it's just one L. H E L. So he had flight six six six, and they went to H E L on the thirteenth. On the thirteenth, on Friday the thirteenth. Even better, the flight took off at thirteen hundred local time. The one R. The one hour and thirty four minute flight landed at the Helsinki airport at three forty one PM Helsinki time. Um Flight Trader twenty four is a is that an account that tracks air traffic around the world. They even pointed out that the aircraft is thirteen years old. <laughs> So how many people rode that airplane besides the pilots and maybe the stewardess? Did they actually get anyone to ride? No, the but they were actually going to look and see if there was anybody on there that was named Jason. Mm-hmm. So, so, do you believe in coincidences? Perhaps in that case, but normally I don't. There is no such thing as a coincidence. So. Well, they say there's no such thing as a unicorn either, Melody, but maybe there is. I never heard that. Well, I heard it. No I've heard it. I hear lots of things, Melody. No such thing as a unicorn? Mm-hmm. Really? Yep. Oh, man. It's kind of like learning that there's no Santa Claus. Huh? <laughs> no such thing as Rudolph, the red-nosed reindeer. And it reindeer. really hurts when you're over that 50 mark. Anyway. hey, well, Someone's some... over 50? Well, I didn't want to say 60. <laughs> You know, our listeners and my clients think we have a youthful. Um, anyway, let's move on. Got an article from Blabberbuzz. Now, Sounds... let me just say this out. Bob Chapman always said I was young. So you have to take from his, you know. He, well, you were young. He always, he, was. He, he always supported me and said that I was what? He always said I was 29. He says, uh-huh. you're 29, right? And I'd say, yes, Bob. So... He knew how to treat uh, uh, a lady. Well, he was an economist. Anyway. He was an economist, and he knew how to fudge the figures, all right, in order to make things look a little more optimistic than might actually be the case. So, you know. Hey, I just, got, go ahead. Go ahead. All right, we've got an article from Blabberbuzz, which is not a credible-sounding publication, but it's reasonably, you know, appears to be true. Radical left planning mayhem for Trump inauguration next Friday. Next Friday is the inauguration. Uh, and according to the radical left, we want to shut down the inauguration. Massive security is being planned for Trump's inauguration. There's very good reason for that. In addition to fears of terrorist actions... The radical left <laughs> is planning a number of different actions for Inauguration Day. According to Reuters, thousands of demonstrators are expected to turn out in Washington next week for protests aiming to shut down the inauguration of Donald Trump. Um, protesters will attempt to close down 12 security checkpoints at the U.S. Capitol. Are these people on drugs? Well, probably they are. 
they're going to, I see, you're going to try to close down 12 security checkpoints at Washington, D.C. Is that right? I mean, I'm, I'm going to sit back and say, that, I, I don't know. I don't think that's likely to work. You're going to need an awful lot of people, and even if you get them, I don't think you'll succeed at this. But in any case, uh, and they also want to close down the two-and-a-half-mile uh, parade route down Pennsylvania Avenue, according to the leaders of a group called Disrupt, apparently I-20. We want to shut down the inauguration organizer, David Thurston, told the news conference. We want to see a seething rebellion develop in this country, in this city, excuse me, and across the country. What do you think, Melody? Are they likely to succeed? No, and, I, don't uh, they, I don't think they will. And I don't think they're and, even going to get many people to show up. And, but the, well, I think there'll be a lot of people there. I know bikers are supposed to be there and so forth. I think there'll be a good good crowd there. Oh, but, there'll be a crowd. But, are they demonstrators? No, not demonstrators. Yeah. But, you know, the um, Homeland Security Secretary Jay Johnson said that, you know, they don't see any immediate threats at this inauguration. I mean, I think they're going to keep, uh, you know, things uh, pretty tight. They're, they're oh, going to plant so up. many barriers uh, to protect any type of truck attacks that the, these jihadists have done in France and Germany. You're going to have, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're going to make sure that there's, uh, that it flows uh, and um, that there won't be anything that happens. And, um, I would be, I am inclined to agree with you. And yeah. beyond that, we will watch and see what happens. But it looks to me like this will be another fantastic failure for the left. All right? They've really gotten beat up. They thought they could do anything they wanted to do with getting Hillary elected, and that didn't come through. And uh, they've been angry about it. Well, and I think this is going to be just another, this is going to be another significant defeat and evidence that the left may not be anywhere near as potent as it had previously supposed. Well, probably, but you know what? I mean, I get, you know, I, you know, they need to move on and so forth and whatnot, but they do have a right to say what they want to say. I, agree I mean, and I, you know, you know, I mean, I'm not supporting them at all by saying that statement, but you know, we, you know, and I listened to Rush Limbaugh and I, I listened to Mark Lemon and they just go on and they string them apart and rip them. But it's like, Hey, and, 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 there's a lot of things to say about what they say, not just that they're complaints, but sometimes they do say some things that are just like, what? <laughs> yeah, I know. You know, but they do have. What are you smoking? What are you smoking? If they're unhappy yeah. with the election, they do have a right to voice it. And oh, I agree, but they don't have a right to disrupt the inauguration. No, they do not. Right. They do have a right to demonstrate. Well, they probably do. Yeah, I agree with that. They have a right to demonstrate, but I don't believe they have a right to disrupt, and that's what they're asking for. They're saying they're going to disrupt. They, they want to. See, we want to see a seething rebellion develop in this city, meaning Washington D.C. and across the country. Well, guess what? I think you're going to be lucky at 500 demonstrators on this thing across the country. We'll watch and see. Oh, you can get many more than that. But, uh, but the part that normally at this time of the year it's cold. And nobody wants mm -hmm. to go out. But it's supposed to be 50-some degrees during the inauguration. So you will have more people coming out and being in the streets and walking and so forth. So I think you will have more people show up just to be there, not to, not to demonstrate and so forth. But you're going to have a lot more people out and about because of the warmer temperatures. 
Well, I wonder how many firearms are going to have people. How many people be carrying firearms? Well, if they, uh, I mean, you know, you, you know, you know. I'm sure. I don't even know if you can in Washington. Well, I'm sure you can't. You know, I'm sure you can't, and you know. So I mean, that to me, that doesn't even have anything to, you know, to, to play into it. So that's a separate issue. But um, so anyway, we'll see. Um, but um, got an article here from the Associated Press in London. And the headline is, World Economic Forum Says Capitalism Needs Urgent Change. Now, I would disagree with this article in some regards. It's a well-written article. They make some interesting points, and we'll get to a few of them before we're done here. But if you want to change capitalism, I would suggest that the first order of business is you get some capital. Uh, the problem we have, we we see this in the newspapers and magazines and whatever, and people go, oh, is capitalism dead or something like that? Capitalism isn't dead. Capitalism has simply been abandoned and put off to the side when the government changed our form of money from an asset to a debt. Capitalism depends on assets. Capitalism depends, in my opinion, to a significant degree, on something like gold and silver for a monetary system. I don't think you can have capitalism without gold and silver. I may be mistaken about that, but I think if you want capitalism, fine. Give us some gold-backed money and gold-backed, silver-backed money, not just this debt-based crap that they are foisting off on us and they've been getting away with for the last 40-some years. I think that problem with capital is they're not using any capital. The problem with capitalism is they're not using any capital. Get back to gold and silver. It makes for an honest accounting. Real numbers. I think you can get out of that truth. I think you can have an economy that functions effectively. The article says reforming the very nature of capitalism will be needed to combat the growing appeal of populist political movements around the world. This is from the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Um, Now, they are seeing that capitalism is something contrary to the populist movement that's been getting traction in Great Britain, getting traction in this country with Trump, Britain with Brexit. Other parts of the country, uh, other parts of the European Union are threatening to break loose from the European Union. This is populism is rising, and they are they are seeing that as a threat to capitalism. They're seeing these things, and I don't see that the two, populism and capitalism, I don't see that they are antagonistic or inherently antagonistic, but the World Economic Forum apparently does. So getting a higher income or getting a higher economic growth is necessary, but insufficient to heal the fractures in society that were evident in the election of Donald Trump as U.S. president and Britain's vote to leave the European Union. In a wide-ranging report from the organizer of the annual gathering of politicians and business leaders at the Swiss resort of Davos, the World Economic Forum identified rising income and wealth disparity as potentially the biggest driver of global affairs in the next 10 years. Now, why would that be? What rising income and wealth disparity? Well, they are looking at this and they're saying... People understand that the top one-tenth of a percent are getting richer and richer and richer, and the majority are getting poorer. And when people understand that, they're recognizing, look, there's there's first-class passage on this boat, and then there's steerage, and they want us to ride steerage while they stay in first class. And it creates for a certain amount of resentment. And that's what they're talking about here. They're saying we can't continue to just give money to the super-rich and leave the rest of the people rot. 
And if insofar as we allow that to happen, the the majority of the people lose confidence in the system. They 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 uh, and it threatens the system. That's what they're and that's why and they resort to populism. They say, what's in it for us? And if we have to vote against the establishment, if we have to take down the establishment, how about something for us? Right? And here we have the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, saying, yeah, these guys aren't kidding. These populists aren't kidding. And we've got to do something to include them in, this, in, the, in, the, in the U.S. and global economies. As an example of this growing inequality, the World Economic Forum highlighted the massive increase in CEO pay. At a time when people in advanced economies have struggled to make ends meet following the global financial crisis. This points to the need for reviving economic growth, but the growing mood of anti-establishment populism suggests that we may have to do, we may have passed the stage where this alone would remedy fractures in society. Reforming market capitalism must also be added to the agenda. The combination of economic inequality and political polarization threatens to amplify global risks, fraying the social solidarity on which the legitimacy of our economic and political system rests. What they're saying is we can't come up with a new world order if we're going to just reward the people that are running multinational corporations. Something's got to be done to change the the way the pie is distributed to see that some of this is not just going to the super rich, but also going to people that are struggling just to survive and and, uh, get by. And they say we need long-term thinking on capitalism. And what I think they mean by that, that's that's a quote from there, we need long-term thinking on capitalism. I think what they're saying is we can't afford to have the markets controlled by politicians who juice the market every couple of years to ensure their own re-elections. We've got to take a long-term view, and we can't just do stupid things that are good for incumbent politicians right now. We have to sit back and say, what's good for the country for 5, 10, 20 years into the future? And we aren't doing that. We are increasingly watching our our economies manipulated and uh, to the the detriment of most people. They need them when they recognize recognition of the importance of identity and inclusiveness in political communities. And they want to strengthen global cooperation, meaning we all need to get we all need to get along with the robots and the new world order melody. They know what's best for us. They'll tell us what to do. And it added that a failure to address the underlying causes of the populist tide poses a threat to mainstream politicians. And I would disagree that they're mainstream. I would say that they are treasonous whores who are trying to create a new world order where there is no legal basis for doing so. And it raises the risk that globalization trend will go into reverse. Well, we're out of time. We can't go much further with this right now. But they're telling us that globalization is contrary to populism. And I think that's an extraordinary admission. I think it's an extraordinary insight. We'll see if it's true or false. We are out of time. I'm Alfred Addis here with Melody Cedarstrom on Financial Survival. We'll be back next Monday. Hope you will tune in at that time. In the meantime, the good Lord bless you and me and Melody and Todd, the producer. Bye-bye. Seems to be a single pair.
Talk Live. I'm your resident herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Hope you had a great day. We're here to empower you. That's what we like to do here on Herb Talk. Thanks for joining us on the American Voice Radio Network. Hey, magical engineer Frank and I have a great show. We are going to be talking about the cleansing machines. Oh, we're not talking about cleaning your floors either. This is something modern medicine's rolling out. Uh, we've touched on uh, a bit of this topic before, but we're expanding it today. We have some new information to share, so uh, heads up with that. Also, um, we touched on the radiation issue uh, Tuesday, so we're going to try to finish that up and see how much time we have left. And we have a quack report, but before we get to all that great stuff, big salute and semper fi to righteous men and women in uniform is, you know, I'm hitting the knees. I'm seeking Lord's face. Hope you are too. You know, uh, you know, just nurturing that relationship with the Lord. It's it's a lifelong thing. You know, if you want, you know, because a lot of people have that you know profession of faith, but they don't have the possession of faith. There's a big difference. I did bring my devotional today, and this is from Psalms 118 and First Peter 2. It goes like this. Try to view each day as an adventure, carefully planned out by your guide. That would be the Lord. Yep, instead of staring into the day that is ahead of you, attempting to program or program it according to your will, be attentive to me and all that I have prepared for you. Yeah, it's God's will we need to look for and do. So thank me, he says, for this day of life, recognizing that it is precious and unrepeatable. So trust that I am with you each moment, whether you sense my presence or not. A thankful, trusting attitude will help you to see events in your life from my perspective. So a life lived close to me will never be dull or predictable. Expect each day to be, you know, contain surprises and resist your tendency to search for the easiest route through your day. Be willing to follow whatever I lead, wherever I lead, no matter how steep and treacherous the path before you may seem, the safest place is by my side. Absolutely. You know, um, I know it's, uh, you know, we have to be tested. Tried the reins. You know, the Lord wants to see what you what you got. What's your metal? You know, you're going to be truthful. You're going to be obedient. You're going to be faithful and that kind of thing. So trials do that. You know, they, you know, just like they perfect gold by heating it and purifying it. That's what's happening to you with trials. And without further ado, let's do the quack report. Thanks, Frank. Okay, first up in the quacker. Uh, science is pushing this uh, envelope of babies being made without mothers, right? Um, late last year, the team from the University of Bath in, in the UK discovered that sperm cells could be made from skin cells, or any other egg could be, uh, you know, made from skin cells. So they were thinking about skipping the traditional conception and making it themselves. So at the time they said the scenario right now wasn't advanced enough to make men um, fertilize their own eggs and be father and mother kind of thing. So, but a new report that was published uh, recently uh, by an embryologist at Harvard and Brown University urged nations to begin contemplating the legal minefield of what would surround motherless babies. Hmm. Eggs can be tricked into developing into an embryo without fertilization, he said, 
that the embryos uh, die after just a few days. But scientists at Barth now have developed a method of injecting mouse uh, uh, eggs that were made from skin cells with sperm so that they can cause them to become healthy pups so they didn't die. So they're working with the mice uh, to produce healthy offspring, bypassing the normal process of male sperm fertilizing female egg. So uh, experimentation, um, what else is next, right? Mm-mm. Moving along in the quack report, uh, the CDC scientists apparently lost a box of deadly, highly regulated influenza specimens. Well, what else is no? Uh, laboratory incident reports recently obtained by the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, the USA Today is doing this story. I like their title, Bio Labs in Your Backyard. <laughs> well, and so they wanted to get this information about, you know, how, how well a track record, I guess, the CDC has. And uh, so they asked for this information. Uh, they want to get to the serious truth about the public hazards involved. Um, and so this is when they found out they lost this box of influenza specimens and that was marked uh, hazard, a biohazard, um, a deadly and highly regulated on the outside. Yep. So after two years of waiting for all these reports, the um, – Editors at USA Today that are doing this investigation uh, said that uh, when they got a lot of the information, it was heavily redacted. Uh, so despite the redactions, they said it was pretty clear from the reports that the CDC has more than just a few number of incidents that um, put the public at extreme risk, apparently. All right, last but not least in the quack report, uh, they say Trump is taking aim at vaccines. Uh, he names Robert F. Kennedy Jr. head of a new commission to expose the dangers of thermosol or the mercury that's added to vaccines. Actually, uh, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, wrote a book called Thermosol, Let the Science Speak, the Evidence Supporting the Immediate Removal of Mercury, a known neurotoxin from vaccines, a highly recommended reading by a lot of naturopaths out there. But um, he's not for getting rid of all vaccines, just the ones that create neurotoxicity. Uh, according to a quote from his book, he says, indeed, the evidence of thermosol's neurotoxicity is so overwhelming and the lack of safety data is so complete that anyone who is willing to read science and who believes in the capability of scientific methods to determine empirical truth must conclude that thermosol causes serious brain damage. Wow. Well, like we all knew that already, but we'll just we'll pray that God's hand be on that investigation and see where it goes. You know, we'll, we don't know what God's got planned there, but uh, we got to save some babies and you know, if anybody can save them, that's the Lord. And that wraps the quack report. Thanks, Frank. Yeah, bio labs in your backyard. That's one of the reasons I put together a pandemic kit. <laughs> Got to have one of them. Absolutely. Um, okay, we're going to be talking about uh, cleansing by machines. Um, 
a lot of toxicity out there in the human body. And it has become a problem that even medical science is now building machines to treat it. So a, a major organ of the body that medicine uses machines to cleanse is the blood. And a lot of people don't identify that their blood is really an organ because it contains tissue. But everyone is aware of dialysis machines, and they cleanse the blood when the kidneys fail. However, now science has developed a machine to cleanse the blood from bacterial infections such as E. coli. So scientific uh, medicine has, states that there are like 8 million or more Americans that die from blood poisoning called sepsis. And often the bacterial infection is acquired while the patient's at the hospital or other medical facility. And it's the leading cause of death in hospitals is sepsis. So did our creator expect us to need machines or is there another way to cleanse our blood and protect ourselves? Well, we're going to check this out. Now let's talk about blood infections quickly. Sepsis can pollute your blood and your body organs, causing them to shut down. So is sepsis a serious condition? Well, yes, it is, and it's life-threatening. And symptoms are fever and low blood pressure. Now symptoms can actually mimic meningitis, where you have an inflamed lining of the brain, and even encephalitis, where the inflammation is in the brain. Now hospitals are reporting a steady increase in sepsis by threefold over the last decade. For example, in 2000, the CDC reported 621,000 cases, and by 2008, it jumped to 1,141,000 cases. So sepsis outnumbers the cardiovascular hospital admissions. And in the United States alone, sepsis outnumbers the deaths by breast cancer, prostate cancer, and death by AIDS all combined. Well, let's look at the risk groups. There are several areas of society that are at greater risk of contracting sepsis, and as usual, it includes the young and the old. But the statistics, I'll get it out, they are showing more males than females do contract sepsis. Now, babies can contract bacterial sepsis during delivery, and nursing homes report more sepsis than any other area. Now, abuse in nursing homes has increased by 30%, which increases the chances of sepsis. Diabetics are another group of people at risk, and according to the Mayo Clinic, many people can develop sepsis. Now, sepsis occurs during a bacterial infection, but can also occur when the body has waste material that's produced by the body turns very toxic and accumulates to very toxic levels. Now, actually, uh, when the Mayo Clinic said that, it just described how real important it is for us to keep all toxins free-flowing out of the body to avoid toxic system overload. Well, let's look at uh, the road to sepsis. There are a number of risk factors that can create blood infections, and they are having diabetes, cancer, AIDS, having kidney failure, liver disease, burn patients can be at risk severe trauma cases, pregnancy, leaky gut or leaky blood vessels, as well as abnormal blood clots, inflammatory diseases, congested organs, influenza, pneumonia, meningitis, having malaria, urinary tract infections, skin infections like cellulitis, appendicitis, which is ruptured, the use of catheters, 
uh, invasive medical procedures, dirty hospital equipment that's inserted into patients, and those in confined healthcare settings, and also, lastly, pandemic-like infections like Ebola and dengue fever. So what could be some of the causes? A lot of people are asking this question. Why such an increase in sepsis, blood poisoning, due, uh, you know, all over America? You know, is it due to a disease? Is it hygiene? Is it neglect? What is it? Well, according to Modern Medicine's clinical assessment, in their report, they said there's a lot of contributing factors to the rise of blood poisoning or sepsis, and it's 10 to 7 fold, 10, it's 7 to 10 fold higher than normal, they said. And they think it's due to a combination of these factors, the aging population, increase in chronic disease, unnecessary surgical interventions or invasive procedures, poor socioeconomic conditions, immune suppressive and chemotherapy treatments, and the overuse of antibiotics that have created a drug-resistant organisms. So, however, in May of 2014, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, they reported that a whopping 50% of hospital deaths were linked to blood poisoning or sepsis. So they figured out that at least 10% of all the hospital patients will develop sepsis, and the CDC then ran the numbers to find 750,000 patients in U.S. hospitals had sepsis. So the Agency for Healthcare Research found uh, um, that their accounting was about 25% of all hospital charges are attributed to treating sepsis. Well, let's get to these new machines now, okay, that are going to treat blood poisoning. So anyone that has had a family member or a friend or even themselves receive dialysis, they are aware that it's almost an all-day treatment. And this is really no way to spend the rest of your life sitting in a chair watching a machine filter dirty blood. So, however, modern medicine states that blood infections like sepsis is becoming a real problem and as has a very high mortality rate of 30%. So, sepsis is a gram-positive bacterial infection caused by numerous pathogens with a com- and the common most common one is E. coli and fungus also can be the culprit. But therefore, so medicine has created this new device and it's designed to improve the mortality rates of people that get sepsis or blood poisoning. So scientists, physicians, and engineers at Harvard's Weiss Institute of Biological Engineering have created a device called, are you ready? It's called the biospleen. That's right. That's what they're calling it. So the biospleen was developed and tested on animals in 2014, and according to the Harvard team, it exceeded expectations helping animals to survive after they were infected with E. coli bacteria. The report specified that the biospleen machine operates at the speed of a dialysis machine and therefore can take as long as four to six hours to clean the blood. So the research was published in the September 2014 Journal of Nature Medicine, and most of the sepsis is from unsanitary and improperly cleaned medical equipment. This is where you know, patients are picking it up at the hospital. This is, you know, what medicine, the medical science does. When they, when they create a problem, then they uh, create a solution and sell you the solution. 
So an uh, antibiotic treatments for sepsis or for fungus can possibly work if the pathogens are identified and the medication is designed to kill that specific pathogen. Otherwise, the treatments are unsuccessful and testing to see which pathogen it is can take 2 to 14 days, which is really time a patient doesn't have because if you get sepsis, you can be dead in two days. So drug-resistant pathogens are also the challenge for modern medicine with sepsis. And according to Dr. Don Ingber at the Weiss Institute, the biospleen machine works like a dialysis machine, and it removes living and dead uh, tissue as well as microbes and toxins. So he goes on to say that the biospleen is designed like a human spleen, and it contains what they call microarchitecture or a series of interwoven channels, and this is to carry the filtered blood. So the machine uses a saline solution to filter the blood and nano-sized magnets that they have coated with lectin protein, similar to the protein used by immune system cells. So the protein binds to the pathogens, the bacteria or the fungus, and it removes them from the blood. They all have also tested the biospleen on human blood in the lab setting. So they took infected blood from a patient in the lab and, and ran it through the machine that way. So it, they said it removed 90% of the pathogens. However, the machine does not reduce mortality all by itself, according to the Harvard researcher Torhid Fanel, he says the drugs are also to be given to the patients while they're on the machine. So they're getting antibiotics while they're um, filtering the blood through the biospleen. Uh, according to um, Tohid Fahadden uh, in the Journal of Biomaterials, he says using the biospleen, device alongside antibiotics can quickly bring blood back to normal, curtailing an inflammatory response rather than exacerbating it. Well, what's the cost of this? Think about it. Uh, well, treating sepsis is really one of the most expensive therapies to have in a U.S. hospital. It costs typically $24 billion a year and the cost of sepsis care increases by 12% a year. So to give you an idea of the treatment costs, when biospleen goes live in hospitals, an emergency dialysis treatment at a hospital costs about $10,000. So here's a, a quote from the Agency for Healthcare Research that says the costs related to sepsis, including long-term substantial care, including rehabilitation, a delayed return to work, and family support network making the cost to be huge. And also, uh, Dr. John Gerswald, surgeon at Texas Tech University Health Science Center, says sepsis is one of the most costly diseases in healthcare. End of quote. So you don't want to ever get blood poisoning. You know, talk about breaking the bank. Well, let's look at an example of medically induced infections. So there um, was this man who contracted a nasty infection after a catheter treatment at his local hospital. He had pain upon urination and after a course of antibiotics his condition worsened and then he lost all sexual function. This gentleman was panicked at what medicine, medical science wanted him to do next so he looked at 
alternative therapies, and he learned that he could use garlic and juniper berries to cleanse the urinary tract of the bacterial and, and fungal infection. So after his pain was gone, he went on to cleanse his prostate using a combination of herbs, and then his sexual function returned. So he did what doctors couldn't. So the moral here is don't be afraid to research your options. So this person acted before it got really uh, a, a bad situation. He acted right away. He didn't wait for the infection to become septic. That's a big, big clue there. So sepsis promotes widespread inflammation, and in the infection's not cleared. A person goes into shock and dies within two days. So this isn't something you want to play with. Um, and there's a way to protect yourself from these types of infections. We're going to get to that in just a second. Uh, so the point of the matter is you have a lot of power, and it really blows people's minds when they learn simple solutions can solve these complicated problems. So sepsis is a scary condition, and so is cancer and other diseases, but most believe they haven't the ability to deal with these issues or even prevent them on their own. But a majority of the cases can be turned around using many of the natural antibiotics, natural antibiotics now, and immune-boosting and detoxifying tools God has provided with his foods and medicinal herbs. So, you know, I've, I've stated before that, you know, organ cleansing is uh, one of those simple things, cleanse and nourish. If you get the toxins out and you put the nutrition in, you sidestep a lot of internal medicine diseases, a lot of them, a majority, if not all. So it kind of is interesting that um, people, new concept for them, cleansing their system, getting it clean, the natural way to avoid conditions like sepsis. Um, I also feel that, you know, diabetics are, are prime for sepsis infections, um, almost 100% prime for that. So they're at a great risk of that. And um, the blood can become very toxic, laden down with sugar and impurities. And this is why uh, the blood is, is supposed to transport oxygen uh, and minerals and nutrients to the cells and then take away toxicity out of the cells. So when the blood's sick and polluted, you can't do that, and that's why their sores, the diabetic has sores, and they don't heal very well. Um, so the blood's dirty and needs to be cleansed. So if the blood becomes too toxic, you know, you got to do your cleansing uh, from bowel system to blood. It's got to be done. It really does. Um, and it's not complicated. It's not expensive. Uh, you can still do it and carry out your normal routine. Uh, it's gentle but effective. So the herbal organ cleanses are really a natural way to sweep the entire system of the impurities like, you know, heavy metals, radioactive particles, pharmaceutical residues, pesticides, and the toxic waste that the body produces that can build up in it. So a natural approach to prevention really is well worth the effort to use it. And that's organ cleansing. So Apothecary Herbs does offer a line of organic herbal organ cleanses. These products are easy to use. They have a line of immune-boosting formulas as well. They offer a blood cleanse, pain and anti-inflammatory, and also the juniper berries and the garlic we mentioned in a liquid form. They do have the gentian root as an Ebola and hemorrhagic fever inhibitor. Um, they have... Uh, 
They have the pandemic kit. They have the kidney, bladder, and prostate cleanse kits. They have that. They have a whole bunch of stuff. If you haven't checked it out, you should. They have a web store. You can go check them out there online, thepowerherbs.com. Or if you don't do the Internet, you can certainly give them a call and ask for a free product catalog. The number is 866-229-3663. If you're outside the U.S., the number is 704 0277. Again, the website is thepowerherbs.com. That's where your healthcare options just became endless. And don't forget, on their website, they have money-saving coupons. You can always ask for them over the phone as well. Save you some money. Uh, so get those tools and put the power back in your hands. That's what it's about. You'll be amazed what you can do. Got to take a break. We'll be right back. Herbalist Wendy Wilson will be right back. If you have a heart condition and emergency rooms and medical doctors are not an option, you need our emergency heart attack kit. Five concentrated liquid formulas enter the system in 60 seconds to protect your heart muscle, strengthen heartbeat, increase circulation, relieve pain, and make breathing easier. When seconds count, you want all the help you can get with our emergency heart attack kit. Easy to use and portable in a one-pound compact kit for your purse, briefcase, or car. Call Apothecary Herbs now for your emergency heart attack kit, toll free, 866-229-3663, that's 866-229-3663, international callers dial 704-875-8010, or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom tall buildings with a single bound? Faster than a locomotive? Whoa! Find the Superman in you! Listen to Herb Talk Live with herbalist Wendy Wilson. Job stress, financial obligations, or relationship problems have you feeling stressed out? When life is too much to handle, use Apothecary Herbs Emotional Stress Formula. Feel calm and more in control with herbs especially combined to provide the organic nutrition your system needs to help you cope. Complete instructions for maximum benefit and a money-back guarantee. You've waited long enough. Call Apothecary Herbs now. Toll free, 866-229-3663. That's 866-229-3663. International callers dial 704-875-8010 or order online at the 3 wsthepowerherbscom 
Life has your HMO, herb medicine options. Coming up next. get older, they are subject to hormone imbalance. And when this happens, men can experience osteoporosis, memory loss, irritability, blood sugar imbalance, weight gain, enlarged prostate, erectile dysfunction, and risk of stroke. The human endocrine system manufactures hormones. Why not feed your system plant nutrition to make the hormones that are right for you? For centuries, these herbs have been used to balance the male hormone system. Men, you've waited long enough for the male hormone formula. Call Apothecary Herbs toll-free, 866-229-3663 for the male hormone formula. 866-229-3663 or online at thepowerherbs.com. 866-229-3663 where your healthcare options just became endless. week. I don't know about you, but, you know, presidential inauguration is on the 20th. And, you know, I'm so excited about that. Uh, Apothecary Herbs is considering doing something special, you know, next week. So uh, look for that on the website um, next week. We'll probably announce it next week. Something special. Uh, So all of you, you know, heads up. Heads up out there. All right, so we, we, um, we're try, trying to tackle the radiation issue last time, but we ran out of time. So we're going to kind of do it again, uh, hitting the high notes and the low notes, and uh, show you what you can do about radiation and protecting yourself. Because we live at a time, you know, where our infrastructure actually is pulsing with radiation. And with that, we're exposed to constant uh, saturation levels every day. And scientific inventions, you know, have provided mankind with numerous conveniences. So how did we get on this path of this electromagnetic radiation called EMFs and Wi-Fi? Well, it seems to have begun in the late 1800s when Polish physicist 
Mary uh, Marie Curie, French uh, physicist Henry Beck Quirrell, I guess that's how you pronounce his name, and German physicist Hein. Wilhelm Rottingen, Rottington uh, got together. They all got together to create uh, what they they had experiments, and uh, well, they were working with electrical current, and they discovered these new rays of light, and they called them X-rays. And adding elements of barium and uranium to electricity, they discovered new light rays and new energy. Later, they named it radioactivity, which uh, radiology was developed from actually that, you know. So all your radiologists that read your X-rays now, this is uh, this is where this came from in the 1800s. So Mary Marie Curie uh, continued with her radiation experiments, um, and she actually exposed herself to a lot of radiation, and she died at the age of 67 from a plastic anemia, which you know means radiation killed her bones and her blood supply. So to this day, Curie's research papers and her cookbook that she was working on are in a shielded box as they are highly radioactive and very unsafe to handle. So in the 19th century, uh, we were you know, put on this path that we knew very little about, which now impacts our health in a significant way on a daily level. So today we have a branch of modern medicine which utilizes radiation as a form of treatment. You know, if you go to the hospital, they have that, uh, you know, radioactive treatment ward. Even veterinarian clinics have a radiation ward now to treat uh, the pets that have cancer. And this is so sad because I never knew of any pets growing up that had cancer. So in a generation now, we have... Uh, pets that have the same ailments as uh, the owners. So can man live safely with radiation? Well, science would say yes. I'm going to say not really. Not really. There are costs. Um, well, let's look at the badge, because anyone that knows someone that works around energy sources, which produce a lot of radiation, they're required to wear these radiation badges. Uh, for instance, places like nuclear power stations and x-ray techs at clinics and hospitals have to wear these badges. So radiation causes cancer, and the International Agency for Research on Cancer which is part of the UN's World Health Organization, lists over 250 Class 2B carcinogens, and on the list is radiofrequency electromagnetic fields, or RF or EMFs. So this type of radiation comes from radios, TVs, microwave ovens, cell phones, and Wi-Fi. So if you haven't noticed, Wi-Fi is being installed in coffee shops and hotels, throughout your neighborhoods, on airplanes, and in schools. So the accumulative radiation effect is enormous, although few studies are even published with warnings about this accumulative effect and these risks. According to the National Cancer Institute, the most common exposure to radio frequency radiation is wireless communication devices and that kind of equipment. So here is a list, your cell phones, your smart meters, any portable wireless device, your laptop, your mouse, uh, TVs, radios, broadcasting antennas, satellite, radar devices, MRI devices, microwave ovens, cordless phones, cell phones, and base stations, uh, Wi-Fi, as we mentioned. And of course, you know, now the new appliances 
with uh, with uh, that kind of technology in it. Your you know washing machine, dryer, uh, refridge. So goodness. Uh, here's some studies. There have been some mixed reports, though, and some experts are stating that there is really not enough evidence to suggest that all these low levels of frequent radiation exposure will put us at risk for having cancer. But the National Cancer Institute has researched on residential exposure of the EMF radiation showing a statistically insignificant association between this type of radiation in some cancers that include breast cancer. So that report was in the Journal of Epidemiology in 2004. Also in the journal article, the workplace environment was also mentioned where workers who are exposed to radiation like in, in power stations, on power line or telephone line workers, they say they have a higher rate of developing cancer such as leukemia, brain tumors, and breast cancer. And those uh, receiving or serving in the military, naval or air force, there are reports that are also at a higher risk rate of cancer due to the radiation exposure from the electronics and the microwave emitting equipment. And um, the National Cancer Institute stated this, employees of large manufacturer of wireless communication products were possibly more likely to die from brain tumors or cancers of the hemiopotetic and lymphatic system than the general population. Wow. And where does a lot of this stuff get made? Not here in America. It's made somewhere else. The WHO asked the working group to review a mountain of evidence on static and low-frequency electric magnetic fields for the potential of cancer risk, and they reported uh, what was it, quote, possibly carcinogenic to humans is what they reported back. So what about our, our children? Um, well, we know that a very, the very young are more susceptible to toxic chemicals and fumes, and I would think radiation. You know, it's going to affect them a little differently. Uh, the Journal of Microscopy and Ultrastructure had a report titled Why Children Absorb More Microwave Radiation Than Adults and the Consequences. Their report stated children absorb more microwave radiation than adults do. The consequences from their study revealed that because their body is smaller, their skulls are thinner, and their brain tissue more absorbent, they are more at risk than adults for developing cancer. Fetuses are more vulnerable than children are, and pregnant women should avoid radiation exposure as much as possible. And studies uh, recommended that adolescent girls who put cell phones in their bras their headscarf or anywhere on their person, um, plenty of data, they say, um, the warning of overexposure of microwave ra frequency radiation produces serious health risks. Also, you know, these kids like to, you know, sleep with their electronics. Not good. Not good. I know of a couple of stories where um, middle school, high school age kids that put their cell phone under their pillow and they wound up having brain tumors, you know. Uh, experts state that the exposure limits are unacceptable and need to be revised. Mark Gibbs asked the question in a network world, is Wi-Fi killing us slowly? Well, in Huntersville, North Carolina, Wi-Fi was installed in the high school, 
in the school in middle schools where they use a lot of laptops. And all of a sudden, several female students developed a rare form of eye cancer, ocular melanoma. So rare, so rare that there really isn't hardly, uh, you know, a dozen cases anywhere in, in, the, in the world each year. But now it's like, you know, dozens of kids at the Huntersville School have this problem. It's weird. And health authorities state they really don't know what is causing the cancer because it usually occurs in people over the age of 50. Well, the community requested an environmental occupational study. Dr. Samuel Milham, epidemiologist of California, was contacted. And Dr. Milham reported, quote, exposure to dirty electricity and electromagnetic signals is meeting the criteria. In other words, it's meeting the criteria for producing this rare eye cancer. Um, and, you know, it's like, it's like we've got a blanket on us of magnetic fields. Uh, they call them runaway currents or rogue electricity in our modern society where we have constant streams of electricity colliding, reflecting, escaping and magnifying our exposure to dirty electricity. So for everyone, especially children, there's this risk of a cumulative effect. Dr. Milham says this, it creates a steady bombardment of electromagnetic signals that we develop health problems. We are swimming in an electrical chemical soup, he says. So Dr. Milham has been uh, seen... Um, the rate of various forms of cancer in school children explode during these, because of these high electrical impulses that are bombarding the classrooms. He reports that he is not a popular person with school boards or city council members. No, he's telling it like it is, you know. And he says that some people can tolerate the dirty electricity better than others, but over time, the body is worn down and develops cancer. And Stuart Simonson, he's a chemical and environmental engineer, he says that the Huntersville, North Carolina eye cancer cases may be the result of dirty electricity also from the Doppler radar station that is near Huntersville, and it's owned by the Federal Aviation Administration. Simonson feels that these radar stations can turn humans into antennas, and he states that he has seen research that dirty electricity can also give animals and sea life diseases. Mm. Well, we have to be proactive. Anyway, you slice or dice it. Um, that's protections don't take a chance you know parents need to be more protective of the kids than ever before we also need to be more sensitive to the devices that can create weaknesses in our bodies and invite disease you know i actually purchased what uh, is called a rad meter a few years back and this measures the dirty electricity in my work environment in my home and i i tend to take readings off the device, and I also try to limit my exposure. There are a lot of companies online that offer ways to minimize your exposure, and I've been, you know, fighting my electric company regarding smart meters, and I still have, I still have my analog meter on my home, and uh, so I, I, you know, I'm actually penalized monthly by the electric company because I have my old meter. 
Yep, yep. Uh, you know, twice I've caught them trying to sneak on the smart meter. Uh, I just happened to be home at the time. Uh, so, you know, and then saying, you know, oh, 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 false pretenses is with all these excuses. In one instance, uh, my neighbor sold his house, which already has a smart meter on it. So the day that he closed on his house, there was a utility truck parked at my house, in my driveway. Contractor walked up to my backyard, and I come out of the house, and I go, what are you doing? He was trying to remove my my meter. And um, he says, I have a work order to switch out your meter. I said, let me see that work order. And it had the new people who bought my neighbor's house, their name was on it, but with my address. And I go, what, what, what craziness is this? Right? Of course, the contractor didn't know anything about it, so he just packed up his stuff and left. And I called my electric company. I go, listen, stop it. You just stop it right now. And they were like, oh, that was just an oversight. I said, no, it's not. My neighbor, the people who just bought the house, you already know they have an analog. on. Uh, they have a smart meter on their house because it communicates with you. See? So can't get nothing over on that. So, of course, you know, they, they, they just let me be for the moment. So praise the Lord on that. So, uh, so my, my analog saga continues, I'm sure. Uh, they're not going to stop until they put a smart meter on this house that I'm in. Mm. But I pray against it because I have read the research on the smart meters and it's not pretty. So I hope you are protecting yourself as much as possible if you have a smart meter. Most of them, unfortunately, in, in you know basic America and these you know small starter homes, where are the meters? They're on the outside of the back of the house. Where's where's the meter? The wall? It's right outside your bedroom or somebody's bedroom. And so you're in that room what eight hours a day, sleeping, getting radiated. Not good. Not good. So. Um, you know, I like to use the herbs that draw out the radioactive stuff, the particles that get lodged in your tissue. So organ cleansing, once again, is going to save the day. And uh, so if you're interested in learning how to do that, the folks at Apothecary Herbs will put those tools and information in your hand on how to do that. Um, very inexpensive, very proactive way to protect yourself and very effective as well as affordable. So give them a call. Ask for their catalog. And the catalog is free. The number is 866 229 3663. 866 229 3663. You can check them out online at thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.thepowerherbs.com.
So it's like you ask the Lord's hand to be upon you and to broaden your way and keep evil from you so that it not grieve you. Great prayer. Great prayer. Also, uh, Proverbs, in the last last, uh, chapter of Proverbs, last book of Proverbs there, um, you'll you'll learn about... um, no, it's Psalms 91 is what I'm thinking of. Psalms 91 uh, is special prayer protection from all the chaos in the world. So uh, get out the Bible. Dust it off. Read those. You know, there's supernatural power when you read that uh, protection upon you in your home, in your household, in your children. So uh, I, I, I encourage you to do that. All right, we've got a few minutes, so we're going to be talking about, um, once again, cancer. And uh, a lot of people think, you know, Milk may encourage uh, cancer, and so uh, milk tends to be a political subject. I mean, there's a milk uh, cartel, Dairy National Dairy Council, um, supposedly a nonprofit, but you know it's funded by dairy farmers, you know, and so you know it's its own little animal, if you know what I mean. So uh, the dairy industry, very very interesting. So. Does milk cause uh, you to be susceptible risk of cancer? Well, man, 20 million people still have osteoporosis out there, and they're drinking all this milk, eating all this cheese and yogurt. Now, scientists have known for some time there has been this link between milk and breast cancer, prostate cancer, and just plain cancer. So epidemiological and cultural studies have proven there's a correlation between the consumption of dairy products, especially whole milk and cheese products from cow's milk, and the number of cancer cases. In 1977, scientists compared the incidence of breast cancer in Japan and found a significant increase in both the consumption of dairy products and the occurrence of breast cancer in those urban areas. You know, prior to World War II, breast cancer didn't exist in in Japan. They didn't consume milk. And, of course, you know, then they get westernized, and McDonald's is on every corner, and there's, you know, cheeseburgers. So all of a sudden, uh, the Japanese women are coming down with that problem. Um, And milk seems to be a universal allergen, It's been identified as the most common allergen. Uh, The number two most common allergen is wheat. So bottom line is if you want to eliminate your food allergies, just, you know, stop stop using the cow's milk. And your urinary tract infections, your upper respiratory infections, your sinusitis, your pneumonia, those ear infections, digestive complaints, asthma, and now, according to science, cancer are going to go away. Uh, switch to something that's non-animal. Um, and people say, well, I don't drink milk. But they forget about the cheese. Cheese is ten times the concentration of milk. So if you're, you know, having, you know, cheese on crackers, goodness. I mean, there's a couple of glasses of milk. And uh, there are, uh, there's this misconception if you don't have cow's milk, you're going to have weak bones, osteoporosis. Even though the World Health, Organization, World Health Organization knows that the scientific studies show that when you consume milk as a calcium source, your body will absorb maybe 17%. 
and there's no guarantee it'll end up in your bones. They already know this. Bone health is also tied to minerals and to hormones. So you have to ask yourself, how does the cow develop strong bones and loss of muscle mass and doesn't consume milk itself past weaning? Well, it's because it eats greens. If you want strong bones and good muscles, you want greens. So we have 9 million cows in the United States which are not classified as healthy. And the reason is, is, you know, they're, they're stuffed full of, um, they got leukemia viruses and Crohn's disease because they're shot up with all these growth hormones. And this is getting into your milk. Dr. Robert Cohen's book, Milk, the Deadly Poison, he says um, it affects your hormones. Uh, they inject the cows with hormones, and it affects humans and how they metabolize the milk product. One glass of milk can flood your body, your blood system, system with estrogen, increasing your risk of breast cancer, he says. Whoa. Wow. So uh, definitely, definitely check out uh, milk alternatives, and uh, this is why you know a lot of uh, a lot of people are switching uh, off the milk, and that's a good thing. Um, watch the yogurt, though. Go to something else. A lot of people say, "Well, how about goat milk?" Um, goat milk has a different protein. It's much easier in the digestive system to digest, and that's what the ancients used. Basically, was goat milk. They didn't use cow's milk, and so if that's a baby step for you to get off milk products, then go there. Um, and uh, But eventually I would get off the animal product itself, period. So, uh, you know, go organic. Um, if you get meats from, or from a, a beef or chicken, uh, make sure it's not treated with hormones and, and growth hormones and, and antibiotics. Um, and if you get any fish, make sure it's not from the Pacific. Uh, you know, just make sure that you're doing what you can to make sure your food sources are as clean and as healthy as possible. Um, so you want to make sure also uh, you get balanced pH when you get real calcium, and you do get real calcium in plants, so green leafy vegetables, oranges, and some of your herbs. And it's going to offer you a, a good balance with your minerals, magnesium, and boron there. So um, foods like, you know, nuts, seeds, broccoli, cabbage, carrots, cauliflower, they're going to have that calcium with the right amount of mineral, boron, and magnesium to balance. If you're looking at herbs, that'll be horsetail, comfrey, oat straw, lobelia, they'll have the calcium in there as well. And uh, the body can metabolize that really well and use it for bones, muscle, connective tissue. If you're looking for an herbal liquid calcium, check out thepowerherbs.com. They have one there. 866-229-3663. Call Apothecary Herbs and ask about their calcium liquid. And forget about osteoporosis and uh, the moo cow. 866-229-3663. You are more powerful than you think. I'm out of time. The information presented is not intended to diagnose, treat, prevent, or cure disease. To seek medical advice if you dare from a licensed medical physician. <laughs> Your herbalist, Wendy Wilson. Until next time, be well.
sulfur has been depleted from the soil, which means most people have been depleted of sulfur. Sulfur has been found to transport oxygen throughout the body. You need oxygen. You need organic sulfur. American Voice Radio Network has organic sulfur. Go to AmericanVoiceRadio.com and then to the Superstore to order your organic sulfur. It's your choice. Do you want to feel better or not? Don't forget to tune in to the Sulfur Hour Plus One on AmericanVoiceRadio.com, Thursdays, 6 p.m. Pacific. Energy prices have increased over 20%. Wheat and gas prices have increased over 70%. What's going to be next? Do you see these trends reversing or even stabilizing? All fiat currencies have always failed and collapsed their economies on their way down. The Roman Empire, China, France, Argentina, Finland, Mexico, Russia, Zimbabwe, all tried fiat currency and all collapsed into chaos. Meanwhile, the dollar has lost over 97% of its gold value since 1971 when an ounce of gold was valued at $35. If your assets are in paper, you are in danger. Protect your assets with gold and silver. Visit Discount Gold and Silver Trading at DGSCoins.com. That's DGSCoins.com or call 1-800-375-4188. That's 800-375-4188. Protect yourself and your family. Most people realize their body needs clean water to function properly. Pure is the cleanest water, also known as distilled water. Some frauds pushing fake science and ignorant people repeating their disinformation and half-truths will tell you distilled water leaches minerals from the body. What they fail to tell you is distilled water only attracts... Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.